my name is Adam Canal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise Podcast. Whatever you want. So, uh, is that a Los Poyos Hermanos shirt? Yeah, it is. Los Los Poyos Hermanos. That's, that is fantastic. I love that. <gasps> yeah, yeah, man. I've had this shirt for a few years now. I, uh, yeah. It's, it's getting to the point where there's like tiny holes developing, you know? But that's when a t shirt gets good. It's seasoned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I like that. It's like a, it's like a skillet, like a cast iron skillet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Until a t-shirt has just like, not even holes, but like just those, uh, the threadbare little patches, uh-huh. man, that's when a t-shirt just gets. <laughs> yeah. What, what, uh, what scotch are you drinking, man? I gotta know. What, oh yeah. Yeah. I have uh well, two things, actually. I have this okay. beautiful decanter. Yeah. Look My, at that. My wonderful girlfriend got this for me on oh, two-year anniversary. Wow, that's great, man. So, is it like it looks like it's it's lead crystal? Right? Yeah, it is. Great. And and wow. I have the uh the matching glass right here. There you go, man. You know? That's perfect. That's it's perfect. A beautiful thing. But this is uh this is Johnny Walker Red. Nice. All right, far out. What are you working with? I am working on the uh P- uh Port Charlotte 10 year heavily peated. Uh, my my brother Mark Ballard got me into this, and it is fantastic. It is really peaty, and the the older I get, the I mean, I've just gotten to the point where it's a bit masochistic at this point. I just like <laughs> I like the I, I I want it to to taste like I'm just eating a peat bog, oh and then God. I'm like perfect. And I used to like be the exact opposite, just opposite. Like 15 years ago, I wouldn't go anywhere near like an overtly peaty scotch and now i'm like on this bizarre hunt to find the world's peatiest scotch uh, I, I, like, love I love that i love that search the yeah, search right? is a beautiful thing <laughs> exactly exactly i i mean i did the same thing with uh as did many other people with uh india pale ales mm-hmm. like five or six years ago when it was the rage everybody got to this point oh, where they were yeah. like what is the hoppiest IPA I could ever taste and then once you find it you're like well this is dead to me now I can't I don't give a shit about this. Yeah. Uh, by the way, are you going to like beep out cuss words or leave them in or what's the policy there? Because I get a little sailor-esque sometimes if I'm not careful. You know what, man? Um, that's that's the way of the wolf right there. And I do that, too. Right. So. Okay, far out. Let's do it. Cheers. <laughs> I have to say, this is a, a, a Making Noise podcast first right here. So cheers. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. The, the scotch during the podcast? Exactly, yeah. Okay, far out. Uh, oh my god that is damn fine i've been teaching kind of nonstop all day i just wrapped a 90 minute practice session right before this i just put my horn away Mm -hmm. uh so actually i haven't had that much to eat today oh and i just poured myself a healthy two fingers there so this might get really interesting is what i'm saying so i'm looking forward to it you know the here's the thing is, is is like the title of the podcast is making noise right we're gonna make noise no we're gonna make noise it's gonna happen it's gonna happen i have my aromatherapy candle going i have my scotch we're gonna have a great time yeah i I think i'm in the same position i haven't i mean i have eaten today but um 
Okay. I, I worked out beforehand, so I expended a lot of energy. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you do the you do the workout session that goes straight to the scotch. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, it's it, the thing that I gotta say is like, to me, like having a sip of scotch and like swishing it around in your mouth, it's like a refreshing like peppermint or something, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, absolutely. It, it, and and or like um, you know, you know Rhonda Taylor. Yeah. So one time Rhonda and I were talking about the, um, the, the, the refreshing feeling of going outside at like five in the morning, like yeah. that crisp air right, and like right, the right. silence with no one around and stuff, you know, yep. that's what I feel like with scotch. I'm going to yes. And you with that with scotch. Yeah. It's that five in the morning on a crisp, on a crisp, like slightly foggy morning and you go up to last night's campfire and it's still burning a little bit, but there's like the, the smolder, there's the smoke <laughs> yeah. that's still like curling up and you smell that. I think, yeah, that's it. That's the vibe. You just you brought just this think- in a direction that I love. I, I'm like okay. so psyched that we're here. <laughs> oh yeah, we're going to do it. We're just starting. This is like minute two or something. I'm not, I'm not sure. Like let's, let's it could be hour it. three. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, time as much with uh, everything in our society is completely a construct. So let's yeah. just dive. Let's just dive into it. Let's dive into it. I, How I, have I you been? It. Are you well? Yeah, I think for the most part. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. It's funny. The composing world for me has been has been completely, oh, not completely, um, but it's been a big challenge for me lately, mm. and. Um, uh, so I've been trying to battle against the whole resistance of of every other thing, every other you know, daily life issues or like mm-hmm. other things. I'm just like tapping on emails and what have you, and, and yeah, that whole yeah. thing. But um, other than that, I think I'm in a pretty interesting spot right now, honestly. Like like okay. um, psychologically and emotionally, you know, feeling okay. pretty balanced for the most part. Which which it's like. A great spot to be for me you know yeah absolutely and that's something you got to work on that's a that's a daily that's a daily work item isn't it finding that equilibrium yeah it's yeah and it, it's a constant like it's a constant challenge and and uh what's that one was it like the declaration of independence or whatever the pursuit of happiness right yep like that like that wording is so so um accurate the pursuit you know like, right right yeah absolutely it doesn't guarantee happiness it guarantees the pursuit of yeah right? like you're always in search of that thing in order to to find you know to be in that place but yeah yeah absolutely and that's you know the the pursuit of happiness also means leaving comfort mm. um, i think comfort is overrated Ooh. Um, yeah I, I i think that comfort is a valued that our society has um, that does oftentimes more damage than it does good. Um, and, and I want to be really clear, I'm not talking about comfort uh, from the standpoint of the, the bottom parts of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Like having shelter over your head, that isn't comfort. That's, that's survival, right? Mm-hmm. Having access to adequate health care that's not comfort. That's survival, right? Uh, so I don't, I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I think once you have those things secured, you know, if if you have shelter secured, if you have food secured, if you have um, 
you know, if you have your health secured and the well-being of others around you secured, that's, that's, I don't count that under comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, I think comfort is, all right, well, you know, I'm, I've been working this job for 15 years. I don't quite like it, but well, it's comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yikes. Yeah, there, there's a there's a serious there's a serious issue in that. Um, yeah, which yeah. which is what I think you're getting at with uh, um, complacency. You know, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Once once you get a little too comfortable with your situation, I mean, you know, a casket's comfortable. That's um, oh wow, <laughs> that's a great line. <laughs> all right, all right, I'm gonna put that on a t-shirt. A casket's comfortable. You should, you should. Oh my god. Well, all right. So so then. I, I, I like uh, what we're talking about right here, but two two questions for you sure, is sure. is uh, how are you doing, and then and then the other one is how do you revel in discomfort? If that's the right wording, I don't know if I said that correctly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't. Um, I'll I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. You know, um, my the school that I teach at is blessedly safe. Um. You know, we've kept our our COVID cases down, which is really great. Then again, I teach at a really small liberal arts school tucked up in the western North Carolina mountains. <laughs> um, we have a thousand undergrads total for the entire campus. Uh, we're not exactly a party school. You know, a party at Marso University is like three guys getting together to play Xbox all night. You right. Know? So <laughs> that's, you Some know, that's dominoes. really, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's really kept uh, COVID cases down. Um, and there's a, you know, the ratio of faculty to students is really low, uh, which means I'm not coming into contact with 50 students in a lecture hall every day. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm safe in that regard. And that's, that's really great. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, there are, there are definitely times where I, I get too comfy. I get a little too cozy and that's, that's okay. I think sometimes, you know, human beings go through periods of that and that's, that's fine, but it's nice to recognize that those should be, those should be islands you know, in the, in the ocean where you get to rest for a little bit and then you dive back out. Um, I think if you, I think there's the danger though, that you stay on the Island too long. Right. Um, then you end up eating coconuts for the rest of your life. Uh, <laughs> um, some people that sounds like the dream. Some people that <laughs> sounds like the dream. Yeah. And that's, I, I, I don't know. I've, and the funny thing is, you know, again, I think some people might be listening to this and going, oh, God, Al's just giving us some really idiotic dude bro culture motivational talk stuff. But, I, you know, I, I think it as musicians, we don't like comfort. You know how uncomfortable it is to learn in a, an instrument at a professional level <laughs> to sing opera that's not comfortable it takes so much stepping out of your comfort zone for decades in order to be able to do that so i don't think i'm saying anything crazy when i say that that comfort can kind of be the enemy right um you know we're comfortable in our in our mother's belly Mm -hmm. you know that's that's when we're comfy and the second we're out we're in it (laughs) yeah you've got to go you know you've got to find something to do you know there's 
you, you know, comfort is not a guarantee. And, and I don't think we should be striving for that. Um, I think the most beautiful things in life come when you're not comfortable. Mm, that's, yeah. that, that's an interesting uh, perspective. I, I haven't thought of it like that. You know, the, the literal sense of being in the womb is comfort, right? Because right. you don't have to do anything except just like be a, a, a bottom feeder almost. You know, like- <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like everything is taken care of for you. Your survival is guaranteed. Your comfort is guaranteed. That's, you know, that's, that's where you're at. And the second you're born, that those parts of the equation are completely thrown into question. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny to think about the fact that one of the first things that's when you think about a child being born, one of the first things you think about is the doctor holding it and it crying. Yes. It's like, is, is, is that us realizing the moment? Like, oh, shit, we got to do this now. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, well, we're in it. You know, let's, let's go. We are absolutely in it. Um, you know, or I'm reminded of, uh, there's an Isaac Asimov, is it? No, it's an Arthur C. Clarke short story where, um, uh, it's, it's documenting the dying moments of an astronaut. And at the end of the story, uh, the, the astronaut begins to scream out for his mother and he's screaming and, and screaming and wailing and screaming and wailing. And of course that screaming and wailing becomes the screaming and wailing for a mother when a child is born. Right. So the, the, the point of the, the point of the short story is documenting that moment of death into rebirth oh my God. of reincarnation. And it comes out of nowhere. You think you're reading this short story and you're like, oh, okay, it's Arthur C. Clarke. It's a science fiction story. That's what I'm reading. And then literally in the last paragraph, he just sucker punches you and oh. goes, psych, this is a short story about reincarnation. Wahaha. And it's fantastic. Um, That's I, I, heavy. It's so heavy. It's I haven't so read heavy. it in 25 years, uh, and I haven't needed to. I'm forgetting the name of the story, uh, but I, yeah, I read it once 25 years ago, and it's just kind of stuck in my soul ever since. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so evident in the way that you describe it, and the, even even you 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 talking about it right there. Like, I just got hit with this wave. You right. know, I'm like. Oh man, that's heavy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, and so, you know, whatever, whatever we see media depictions of a newborn baby crying, I think to myself, oh, maybe that's the death whale of its prior lifetime. Oh, wow. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, why did I have this fucking psychopath on? What is his deal? No way, man. This is exactly what I, what I'm, I'm in this for. I love All right, this. I love out, this. Man. this yeah. Great. I, 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 um, I embarrassingly, well, I don't even want to say embarrassingly, but like, I'm, I'm not much of a reader of like fiction and stuff, you know, and yeah. I, I, I can, I can maybe riddle off some of the stories I read in school, but right, right. one of the things that comes to mind when you tell that short story or, or retell that short story is, um, what's that Edgar, is it Edgar Allan Poe? the telltale heart or something like yes. that. Yes. Yep. Telltale isn't heart. isn't that story heart. a similar sort of outline where it's like, they keep hearing this sound. And then by the end of the story, it's like, Oh, it's cause they buried the body under yeah. the freaking house. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where the, the, the protagonist is a murderer and, and you know, they're hearing the heartbeat underneath the floorboards and that's Ugh. just, Oh, it's fantastic. What a great, you know, I, 
I, I think all of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories would be just easy opera adaptations. And I'm like, come on, y'all, let's get on it. Well, I mean, Mr. Alan, Alan Tyson. Yeah, I know. I, I actually, I have to say, I had plans over the past few years to do a radical reworking of Edgar Allan Poe's Cask of Amontillado as an opera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have since jettisoned those plans um, uh, for reasons I, I won't go into, uh, which is bizarre for me. I know I just said like 10 minutes ago, everything was out <laughs> on the table, but um, it was for what I wanted to do with it. I realized that a, that a white dude should not be telling the story the way I wanted to tell it. Mm-hmm. And I just went, okay, I'm just going to leave that as a thought experiment in my own brain. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to do that. You know, so that's that's why, you know, sometimes it's wise to to recognize as a middle aged white dude that some stories are not yours to tell. And that's what happened with me. And I went, okay, well, I'm just going to check that then I'm going to I'm going to check that at the door. Keep that in my heart as a thought experiment and not tell that story that way. That's that's not a reinterpretation that that is mine to tell. Um, So. So, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I I, uh, I get what you're saying. It's a it's a challenge to figure out how to navigate certain um, story arcs that you want to portray in a in a creative sense, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think one thing is uh, I I have no doubt that the longer you sit on it, if if it is something that you truly want to do, the longer you sit on it, you'll figure something out that that'll that'll be like ah, this is the the way I should do it, you know that. Yeah, you know, yeah. But, I have a I have a second opera idea, and I think I might do that one first. Um, I would really love to do um, an operatic retelling of the classic Western High Noon. Mm. And it's not because I'm a fan of Westerns. I'm a fan of that movie, which is a bit of an anti-Western in several ways. Um, and I would like to write the opera and tell it in real time. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like the original movie operates. Right. It's 90 minutes to high noon and 90 minutes elapse elapses in the course of the movie. And so I would like to try the same thing with with the opera. Right. So that, you know, it's 90 minutes to high noon and the opera is 90 minutes. And then once it makes it to once it makes it to the 90 minute mark in the opera, that's noon. Right. Um, I think it would be a lot of fun to do. I, I love those sort of story arcs where where it's happening in real time, and uh, I'm a sucker for that shit, man. Yeah. I don't know why, but I really dig it. Yeah, I I, I, I mean, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head that do it outside of that. But uh, it's... Uh, there's, there's a movie from the '90s. It's not very good, but it has Johnny Depp and Christopher Walken in it called Nick of Time. Okay, that is told in real time. Um, and it's an okay movie. Uh, you know, it's peak 90s walking mm-hmm. and Johnny Depp at his like, you know, kind of he's he's in that transition per- period where he's like trying to break away from being Tim Burton's it. Right. It, right? right. And do, you know, even more mainstream stuff. And, you know, it doesn't it, it's okay. Was that uh, that was like uh, what was the movie he did with Marlon Brando? Um chocolate or something like that or was that um, yeah 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 uh chocolate i believe uh with god who was the was it julia binoche who is 
Julie Binoche. I'm, I'm forgetting how to pronounce her last name. She was the French actress. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, yeah. Johnny Depp, man, that guy has had an interesting filmography. Uh, have you ever seen Ed Wood? No, I haven't seen Ed Wood yet, but that's Dude, on my list. Dude, check that out. It's, <laughs> it, is, it is secretly, like, I think that's my second favorite Tim Burton movie. Really? It's really fantastic. Yeah, totally fucking bombed at the box office. Everybody was like, oh, wow, from the guy who gave us Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, and Batman. Mm-hmm. And it's like... It's, I mean, but it's a fantastic conceit, the idea of doing a biopic of one of the most notorious B-movie directors of all time and to do it as a neo-B-movie. Right. (laughs) But then that's kind of fucked up, right? Because Tim Burton was handed this giant sack of cash by a major studio, I think Warner Brothers, to make this movie, and he turns into a movie that deliberately looks bad. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, if I were a Warner Brothers exec, I'd be like, Tim, come here. I'm going to fist fight. You. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> what did you do? But I mean, you know, it's I, I think that was uh, Martin Landau mm-hmm. won the Oscar uh, for Best Supporting Actor in that movie. And it's a phenomenal performance. It's really yeah. great. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're right with that. Um, it's an interesting sort of thing to to look at, like. To, to receive, for, for um, Tim Burton to be given all this money to pursue yeah. this project that's almost like um, like anti-Hollywood in a way. Like, not oh, exactly, absolutely. but, you know. What, what yeah. sort of things do you see like that in music? Oh, I mean, well, it's, it's kind of funny because it reminds me a lot of... Uh, so there's, this, there's a really great podcast uh, called Blank Check mm-hmm. where they talk about that. They talk about uh, directors who have enormous success early in their careers. And basically from that point forward, they can make whatever passion projects they want to for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Like no matter how good or how bad their movies are from that point forward, they will always be greenlit on projects, even if they haven't had a successful movie in 30 years, because Hollywood will always be like, well, but this is the person who, who gave us X. Right. 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 This magic. Um, and Tim Burton is absolutely one of those cases, you know? It's like, he has Pee-wee's Big Adventure and then uh, Beetlejuice <laughs> and then Batman 1989, which yeah. just blew things wide open. Uh, I have that know. mask, too. Oh, hell yeah, you do. And then, <laughs> and, and then Edward Scissorhands, and it's like, this cat can do no wrong. Like, mm-hmm. he's coming up with all these bizarre stories. Everybody's buying into it. And then he does Batman Returns, and the people are like, okay. And then does Ed Wood, and then folks are like, okay, really, Tim, what are you up to? And then, yeah, and then he gets to this point where he just, like, remakes other people's properties for the next 20 years. Like, that's how he ends up doing shit like Alice in Wonderland for Disney, and he does the remake of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and he does, right? So, yeah, it's kind of fascinating when you take a look at composers who have big success early on. You know, I talk about that with, uh, with, with some of my students a lot, where you take a look at Stravinsky, you know, where he has this incredible run of these early ballets. You do the Firebird, boom. You do Petrushka, boom. You do Rite of Spring, boom. boom. And then does Les no- you know, Les Nos right after it, which is like Rite of Spring Part Two. Yeah. you know, but still hip. And then, you know, what do you do after that? And it's like, well, here's his octet. 
Right. <laughs> which, which is an incredible piece, right? But like you have to push yourself into a completely different direction, I think. Hmm. You know, when you have that that young early success and you know, it's it's always fascinating to me to see people who have success pretty early in their career. And it's funny because, you know, we all sit around, we're like, oh, goody, wouldn't that have been great? Or wouldn't that be great if I were to get that? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. That could be an awful lot of pressure. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know her, but, you know, you think about Caroline Shaw. Mm-hmm. Partita's just such a phenomenal composition. It wins the Pulitzer, blows everybody's minds. Grammys. Right. And I'm like... Oh, Caroline, <laughs> like, holy cow, uh, you know, this, this brilliant woman, you know, what's, what's the next step, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's wild, you know, and, you know, I think about Kendrick, you know, it's like, what's, what's the next step? Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you do after that? You know, what I, I think about, you know, I, I think about people like, you know, go, digging back a little bit, but Shostakovich was 19 when he wrote his first symphony mm. and it was performed internationally. Like, what do you do after that? That's so that that puts you that puts just enormous pressure on you as a as a young artist. Um, yeah, that's it's, wild. A, it, it's an interesting thing, man. I like. It makes me think of like uh, child actors and um, uh, I don't know, like Justin Bieber, for example. Right. You know, I mean, right. it, like that dude hit success immediately at like 15, 16, you know? Yeah. Um, or like, yeah. like the prime example of 20th, 20th century, Michael Jackson. Right. Right. I, I, but yeah, my, my hot take on, on Michael Jackson, I was just talking about Michael Jackson today, actually, <laughs> uh, uh, in my in one of my classes, is that my hot take is that that incredible run in the 1980s when Michael Jackson went from Michael Jackson, member of the Jackson 5, to the king of pop, mm-hmm. um, has more to do with Quincy Jones. Oh, totally. And Michael Jackson, right? Totally. Like yeah. those three albums, Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad. I'm like, come on. I mean, look, no doubt. No doubt Michael Jackson, a talent that is once in a generation. But right. to me, truly, the, the talent that's a once in a century behind those three albums, that's Quincy Jones. Well, that's, you know? that's, that's the thing about um, Michael Jackson is he, he isn't even an example of what we're talking about because he wasn't the one creating it. He was the right. one performing it. He was the one executing it. Right, exactly. Right, right. Quincy Jones was the, the 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 creator, the brains behind it, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah exactly, so I mean, right. um, but man, you want to talk about a cat who had a career? Yeah. Who still has a career? He's still going. He's still going. That cat's like a hundred. He, yeah, he's 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 old, man. He's yeah, like he's probably working on wife nineteen. <laughs> yeah, he got a bit. You know, he's like he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like eighty seven. Might be time to have another kid. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, what are you <laughs> doing, Quincy? He's like, yeah, I just got back talking with you know. Uh, it's 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 wild, man. Quincy Jones. Have you have you watched that? Um, have you watched that documentary on Netflix? Just called Quincy. Yeah, the one that Rashida made. 
Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. that is just remarkable. It's a like, powerful I, documentary. It is. It is. I tear. I've watched it like three or four times, and I tear up multiple times during yeah. watching a human being operating at that creative level, and and also somebody you know who who is self-aware enough to acknowledge his personal shortcomings. That's something that's really powerful about that. You know, he's, he makes no bones about the fact, you know, where he talks about, yeah, this marriage was, I messed that up. That was on me. And, you know, I don't have a great relationship with X and Y and Z of my kids. Cause I wasn't there, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you know, that takes, that takes a bit of courage in a, major documentary to fess up to that and yeah that's tough that's tough but he does it yeah that's a that's a really good point and that's something that i i definitely walked away from as well um especially during the period of his life where he was having what was it, like heart issues or or yeah or something like that and then he got yeah. into yoga yeah yeah um yeah he had that that uh, i i think it was a stroke or something like that you know where they had to you know, basically do brain surgery. Right. And that, right. that, and that was the end of his trumpet playing career too. Mm, yeah. You know, that's he, something you can't, you can't handle. Yeah. No kidding. Right. Yeah. All, all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're no longer a performer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's tough. But you know, when you're Quincy Jones, he's like, Oh, well forget about it. I'll just write 20 film scores now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me write thriller. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I'm just going to, you know, produce three of the, biggest selling albums of all time in a single decade um, and in in the middle of all that we are the world right he, he was oh producer. yeah that's right he was producer on that he was producer on that like we laugh at that tune now but like that was one of the best selling singles of all time right was it really? i think i yeah i think at the time it was it was the greatest it was the biggest selling single of all time and it raised a ton of money he was like uh, only C. Jones could get that crazy talent pool mm-hmm. in in the same room at the same time, right? That was Quincy. Of course it was Quincy, right? You know, I kind of wonder too, is I I, I feel like, um, and this is just my perspective being, you know, a 31-year-old twenty in 2020, like the 1980s almost feels like the first decade where um, pop singers was like, being a pop singer was uh, like um, iconic and like, like, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but my, my point being that I wonder if that has to do with why it was such a big hit because they had like Cyndi Lauper, Richie or Lionel Richie and and uh, like every other, you know, singer of the 80s on, on there. Yeah, I think I think the advent of the music video um, and the or or rather the rise of the music video in the 1980s also created pop music stars who weren't just superstars, but who also became brands, Mm. right? I mean, Elvis was huge. The Beatles were huge. And they might have had a ton of merchandise. Like, yeah, you know, in the early 1970s, you could go to a store and get a, you know, a TCB pin from Elvis, you know, taking care of business or whatever. But like, starting in the 1980s, you have pop musicians whose image is burned into the collective consciousness as much as their music is. And that's when you start getting pop stars who are like, 
oh yeah, well, I'm in movies and I'm on TV shows and I have my own line of perfume and I'm going to write these books and buy my headphones. And it's like, so this idea of not just having merch, but you're, you're a brand, you're an umbrella, right? Mm. That's, you know, think about Michael Jackson, think about Madonna, you know, Madonna's a pop star. And here she has a best, like the number one New York times bestseller. It's a book called sex. And I'm like, <laughs> You know, that's that represents, I think, a major cultural shift. You're right. I think that's I think that's 80s. And I think a lot of that has to do with the rise of the music video. Mm. You know, we're not just hearing pop stars. We're hearing and seeing them. We are welcoming them into our homes in a media way heretofore unknown. Mm. Um, And I think that changes absolutely everything, you know. That's that's fascinating. It makes me think about um, like, like wondering, was there ever a point where um, <clears throat> like the music that people listen to, it wasn't just music anymore. It also became like a lifestyle. You know, it's like it's like thinking about um, in the in the 80s. Was it the 80s or the 90s when, when Vanilla Ice had to validate himself by saying he had a rough upbringing to prove that he was a rap artist? Right. 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 Like, I wonder at what point, like, I'm sure that was always there in some capacity, but I wonder at what point it was so prevalent with, uh, with the general public, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that goes back way further than, than we like to think it does, you know, um, Jelly Roll Morton made a name for himself by, you know, (laughs) by, continuing to tell stories of the fact, oh, well, you know, I was raised in a brothel and I lost my virginity when I was 12 and I invented jazz and stuff like that, right? So he was a personality and he knew that and he used that personality to tell stories and tell his story and to help sell his music. Um, You know, it goes back to classical music in the 19th century. It's like, oh, wait a second, you know, Perhaps Paganini sold his soul to the devil to be able to play violin that good. Well, you, <laughs> you didn't hear Paganini like calling bullshit on that story, did you? He might not have been the one to start it, but he sure as hell isn't going to stop it out. Right, right. <laughs> I, you know, it goes back to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, right? It, you know, Papa Mozart says that, hey, this is my kid. And, you know, he tells folks that that his kid is a few years younger than what he actually is. It's marketing, you know. Right. Come on, it's and we've been doing it for forever. Well, um, what about what about the fans? Like, like, um, so, like, my my personal uh, experience is like I grew up in high in middle school and high school. Like I was I was into punk rock, you know. Yeah, all right. Like Fast paced, aggressive, wearing a mohawk, like that sort of thing. All right, and all right. um, and like. When when one of the punk bands that I liked, if they became mainstream, it was like fuck that man. I was there first. Like, yeah, you don't live punk like I do. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You know, that's like, yeah, I. You know, if if artists have been doing this for centuries, I'm sure. I'm sure fans have been doing it for centuries. You know, I I don't know. I don't know. I'd be fascinating to go back and, and and see. You know, go back hundreds of years, see see what folks think. Yeah, I, 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 have, I, wonder, I have no idea. 
I wonder I, about I, that. I mean, it, it, it kind of does, like, when you mentioned Paganini and stuff, it brings to mind those stories you hear. I don't know if it's true, but, like, when you hear about women who were swooning swooning over him or, or List when they were performing. List. Oh, yeah, absolutely, right? There's the there's the story that, like, List would get done performing, and you would hear the clanking of hotel keys hitting the stage, <laughs> which I've got to admit, man, that's that's just dope. Oh that. yeah, totally. I love that. That dude, <laughs> that dude's got some got some serious uh serious energy going. Totally. If I, that story is true. Well, right? uh, one thing too, um I don't even know if this entirely relates, but like the 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 feeling of having an entire audience like have a shared or like a shared collective um I don't know, emotion or, or feeling towards what you're doing. And like, to be a little bit more specific besides like throwing keys to say like, Hey man, yeah, 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 but yeah. Uh, like on, on a ballad where everyone has their lighter out. Right. Right. You know, like how, how beautiful is that? Oh, absolutely, man. Like to me as a performer, that's, that's why I do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I do it. You know, I, I want that from the audience. I want to see that audience reaction. I want to know that they're, having a moment and feeling something, you know, I've been, you know, Megan and I have been in a duo for the past almost four years. And one of my favorite moments uh, that she and I have ever had when we were performing, we were doing a concert. This is last April, uh, April, 2019. And we were doing this piece by Mara Gibson. And there's just this phenomenally delicate, intimate moment where where Megan and I are both making sounds at the edge of audibility and we we take a breath and we come in on the exact same pitch and when we did it we were so in tune with each other just like breath together we were so in tune that for a moment I didn't think my note was coming out of my instrument and then so I crescendoed an imperceptible amount and I felt the resistance of my horn. I was like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, okay, I'm playing. And then in the texture of the piece, like I, I have to descend in quarter tones away from her and then lock into something and then she matches that tone. And we did that. And so when we made it to the end of that phrase, I was just thinking to myself, well, damn, we just nailed that. That was really beautiful. That was exactly how I would want that moment to go. And my, I had my eyes closed and I opened them and they just happened to fall on this couple uh, sitting a few rows back from the stage and his eyes were just wide. Oh and he, he turns and looks at his, at, at, his, at his significant other and he just mouths, right? Like, and I watch him do this. He mouths, <laughs> and i was just like yeah that's exactly why you do it. like that is the new music equivalent of you know the lighter the crowd full of lighters yeah. right that was like that was the new music tm equivalent right if you're creating this gorgeous intimate moment and you get an audience member to mouth what the fuck i was just like that's it I'm going to put my horn away. <laughs> I was like, this, this recital's over. That's it's done. It's Job's done. done. Job's done. Oh my I'm, God. I'm out of here. I'm done. So it's, it's amazing that you caught that too. 
It was, it, I can honestly say, like, in, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of performances I've given in the past, like, you know, 25 years plus of my life, that that was a moment. That was that was a moment I replay in my brain. Anytime I'm having a shitty, like, practice day, I'll just, I'll connect with that and be like, okay, well, there's, there was that. You did that. Don't give up. Keep keep searching, keep reaching, keep wanting to improve, keep striving for that moment. Yes, you know, and there's there's that discomfort you were talking about. Discomfort, man, right? Like if you get comfortable with how you sound, all right. Well, you know, you gotta be uncomfortable. You gotta be uncomfortable. You you have to want that bit of discomfort, you know. And and it doesn't, you know, another thing too, though, is that I think I think we also equate uh, discomfort um, or struggle with suffering. And those are mm. not the same thing. You know, I want discomfort, but I don't want to suffer. And I think sometimes we, that's another bad thing in classical music we do too, right? Is that we're like, well, if I'm not suffering, I'm not making art. That's No, stupid. that's, it's so stupid, stupid, but you know, it's so easy to buy into. Yeah. It's so easy to buy into because so much of our culture, both inside of classical music and outside of classical music, talking about classical music wants us to buy into that, right? Wants us to buy into this myth of practicing 10 hours a day or, you know, this kind of black swan mentality. I mean, I know that film's about ballet, but let's be real. It could just as easily be about classical music. Oh, totally, the idea yeah. of beating yourself into extinction and then you achieve perfection in art. I really like Darren Aronofsky as a filmmaker, but also kind of fuck him for that movie <laughs> because it's, 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 it's a really shallow depiction of what it means to create and what it takes to create. You know, I'm a big, I'm a much bigger believer in what David Lynch said that suffering gets in the way of creativity. Mm. If you're suffering and you're a creative you are being creative in spite of that suffering, not because of it. You know, Jimi Hendrix wasn't a legend on guitar because he was addicted to drugs. He was a legend on guitar despite the fact he was addicted. Exactly, to yeah. Harley Parker was a legend on saxophone not because of heroin, but in spite of it. Right? I, I, I love what you're saying right now because it's so, it's so accurate, it's so true. Um, one thought I have as to the whole ideal of like the starving, suffering artist is Ugh. it's it's a romanticized depiction. And right. which is why it actually I would argue that it works well for a movie is because it's romanticized, right. you know, so it's it like, sure is. you know, so like it draws you in and you're like, oh, my God, the, the emotional power behind that, you know. Right. And, right. and um, but that like you said, that's that's part of the problem is like especially when we're we're young students which i'm sure you you probably experience as a professor your students are like oh but i i couldn't do that or like i don't have that uh that pain you know i'm not cutting my ear off like <laughs> right yeah exactly i saw both of my ears how how could i possibly be a great painter like 
Well, there were plenty of great painters who had both of their ears. Go forth. One could argue that the majority of great painters had both ears. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure statistically that is true, right? Uh, yeah, it's just, and, but but you're right. It's the stories about the painters with one ear that sell movies, that sell right. books, that right. capture the public imagination, right? Um, another one of my least favorite classical music tropes that happens in culture is uh, is classical music is something that sociopaths and psychopaths and villains listen to. Mm. That's one of my least favorite. Um, mm. And I don't know where it began, but I think, I think... I, I have yet to see a more compelling case before this. I think it starts with uh, Silence of the Lambs. Ooh, I could see that. With Hannibal Lecter being a highly cultured, mm -hmm. playing the Aria from the Goldberg Variations serial killer, right? Yeah. And I, because I think ever since that movie, what was that, 89? I think 89, 90? Yeah. Um, that that's been a huge like trope in media, right? So much so, like I've been going back and rewatching the Marvel Netflix series, right? And sure enough, while we need a way to show the that Wilson Fisk is the bad guy in Daredevil, so guess what? He's listening <laughs> to classical Mozart. Music. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, and then, you know, multiple series later, we're going to introduce Sigourney Weaver's character in The Defenders, and she's the biggest bad of them all. Right. Guess what? She's a classical music lover and supporter. And I'm like, okay, it's just become this incredible shorthand for, for people who are deranged psychopaths. Um, you know, and I think that comes from decades of classical music denying the body. Mm you know right classical music as a as a culture is for decades has erected that barrier mm -hmm. between artist and audience member and so now i think culturally it's become shorthand for somebody who easily throws up an emotional barrier between themselves and a large group of people yeah, I that's that's I think that's accurate. I mean, it's uh, movies definitely are the biggest culprit for presenting specific tropes in society. Right. I, I would say, like, I mean, yeah. maybe not the biggest, but I don't know. We all watch movies. Like Silence of the Lambs was one of the three films yeah. in history to have the five major Oscars. The so five like... major Oscars, right? <laughs> and one of the few, I think, maybe the only horror movie to win to win Best Picture. Am I wrong on that? There might be another. Maybe I don't know. Let me. Maybe certain it. thrillers, but I don't yeah, know. About, yeah, I don't but know about, yeah. I don't know about horror exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm trying to think of examples in film of classical music being presented as something. Oh, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, I have to go back even further than Silence of the Lambs because Alex in A Clockwork Orange. Mm -hmm is a huge classical music fan, right? Okay, so that's that's a whole decade earlier. I'm going to I'm going to keep digging back, but like I like I but, like that keep going through that process, please. Yeah, yeah, just like move it move a decade back. But I really like um the film Three Kings. Uh the moment where George Clooney is just blasting, I think it's the Bach Mass in B minor. 
and he's just like hauling ass through the desert in this jeep blasting the Bach mass and b minor it's such a fucking badass moment i, I haven't it. seen that since it since it came out i have to i have to watch right? it it's, it it holds up it is a wild fever dream of a movie but i think it holds up i dig it i is dig that it check it out david again. o russell it sure is man okay it sure yeah, is far I, out I have no doubt that it's it's something special, you know. I I just remember yeah. there was a scene where like Ice Cube and who was the third guy? Spike Jones. Spike jo- Spike the yeah the, the director. director? Right? Yep. Really? No. Wait. Uh, no. Mark Wahlberg was the third guy. Spike Jones is the fourth guy, mm. and he ends up getting shot and killed. Okay. But yeah, the director Spike Jones, I believe, is the fourth is the fourth of the three kings oh that's interesting <laughs> but, but doesn't make it wink you know yeah. <laughs> right? yeah i mean the only yeah like the only thing i remember from that film because i saw it when it came out in like 98 99 whatever that was yeah yeah was i i'm pretty sure ice cube and mark Wahlberg were like fist fighting at some point that's like the one thing i remember <laughs> okay legit though i would pay money to see ice cube and mark Wahlberg fist fight in real life oh, in the year of our lord 2020 that'd probably be a good fight Let's make that happen with George Clooney as the ref. Oh my God. We can make that happen. It could be sponsored by Casamigos, right? <laughs> I think I think George Clooney would be the most entertaining ref ever. Oh, 100%. Uh, he, easily the sexiest. Yeah, well, without a right? doubt. Yeah, that, like he, the ref is, that would be the easiest on the eyes. He's the definition of, um, what do they call uh, a silver fox? Is silver that, fox, 100%, right? man. 100%. The yeah. definition. The definition, 100%. Yeah, he is full-on Benjamin Button, right? Just, <laughs> just getting younger and sexier the longer he ages. I'm sure there's a painting of him somewhere in an attic that looks fucking horrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny, man. I like that. I like that. Sure, it looks terrible. Sure he's, looks he's, terrible. The, he's the actual uh, living example of Benjamin Button, which, which is right, funny yeah. that his pal Brad Pitt played Benjamin Button. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> Danny Ocean and uh, I can't remember his name. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like I'm like, oh yeah, Danny Ocean and Brad Pitt. Who's kind of <laughs> yeah. Brad Pitt's character's name is Brad Pitt. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's Sorry, a good Brad one. Pitt as Brad Pitt, not himself. Brad Pitt as Brad Pitt. <laughs> Those are always good ones. Uh, I yeah. um, I was my girlfriend was was reading an, uh, a thing from Buzz Buzzfeed yesterday that was yeah, like yeah. top twenty actors who just play themselves or play the same roles, you know? <laughs> and uh, it was like Jack Black and um, Zoe Deschanel always playing the quirky girl who sings. Oh, like, 100%. 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was it was an entertaining little thing to kind of go through. I mean, I didn't agree with all of it, but it was still fun to read, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, but hey, look, if you... Look, if you're Jack Black and you manage to become a Hollywood star, you ride that. Oh, you yeah. ride that train as long as you can and then like you get out and you put your right foot on the ground and you push that train even further once it comes to totally totally man stay on that track well I, I this almost like makes me uh think back to the conversation we're having about people who hit it big when they're young yeah and they have that's... that hit and then it's like how do i what do i do from here do i ride this wave it's like i i think of penderecki in the early 60s yeah for and then sure come what was the early 70s when he just like boom. and then he's like yeah never mind yeah <laughs> not anymore right i will incorporate passages like that. you know and that's really fascinating too uh again with one of my classes i was talking about that just today where 
we were talking about a lot of these high modernists um, who made names for themselves in the 50s and 60s and into the early 70s. And then you revisit their music in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, and they really are doing different stuff, you know? And I think that's something that, um, that I think a lot of music history and music theory classes at the collegiate level do a poor job of expressing, right? Because think of how many people hear Penderecki's Threnody mm-hmm. in a music history survey class, and then they go, okay, well, that's, that's Penderecki. I got it, right? I don't really dig that piece. I'm not going to listen to any more Penderecki. <clears throat> or they listen to Boulez Le Moteau, and then they're like, okay, well, I've got Boulez now. I don't really dig that. I don't have to listen to any more Boulez. Um, um, or, you know, Luda Swavsky, one of my favorite composers, oh, they listen love to him. Venetian Games, and then they go, oh, okay, well, that's, I, I guess it does what it does. I don't really have to listen to anything more. And then I'm like, okay, great. So now you're missing out on, you know, Penderecki's later works. You're missing out on Boulez doing hit, the orchestral version of his notations. You're missing out on Ludoswavsky's Chantefleur Chantefable. You're missing out on, uh, you know, Ludoswavsky's Partita for Violin and Orchestra, which is just one of the greatest little violin concertos Beautiful. in history. Beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, man, you know, it's it happens a lot in in music history and music theory classes, especially with post 45 music where there's so much to get through, I think yeah, yeah. that it's like, okay, well, you're going to get one piece by a composer and what's, but what's really unfortunate is that the pieces often chosen to represent those composers are their quote unquote breakout pieces. Right. right. So it's the shit that they were writing when they were like 26 or something. And then they have 50 more years of composing ahead of them where sometimes they're writing music that's radically distant from the piece that became their quote unquote breakout hit. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, so a whole generation of, of people going through these courses are like, Oh no, I heard those works. I, you know, I'm not really hip to them. That it help, It happens that way a lot with one of my personal favorite composers, Elliot Carter, mm. right. Where where, you know, you hear maybe the piano concerto or the double concerto, you know, from the 60s or the third string quartet. And then people go, oh, my gosh, this is just like the pinnacle of of complexity. And I can't really get into it. I'm not going to listen to any Elliot Carter. And then they listen to some of Carter's music post 2000 when, mm-hmm. you know, Carter was still kicking and still writing music. Amazing. Amazing music. And it's it's so light. It's so effervescent you know, so much of this density has been removed. It just floats in air. And then people go, wait a second, this is the same composer. And I go, yeah, this is really incredible. You know, you listen to, I think his string orchestra piece, Sound Fields, ends on a B-flat major triad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or with the sonority that contains that, that, that like a, <laughs> a, a muddied B-flat major triad, I think. I, I don't know. It's been a while since I've listened to that piece, but... You know, you compare that to something like the third string quartet or the duo for violin piano or something. And it's, I mean, it's just night and day. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, of course, what makes it into the anthology is one of Carter's works from the 60s or 70s. Never mind the fact he wrote 40 more years of music after that mm. in, a, in a really different vein. Um, I think it's, I think it does a serious injustice to so many of these composers. It's, it's, oh man, that's so true. Uh, 
And I think I think that's this connects totally to what we were saying earlier about um, once again living in discomfort because as a creative person, like to well not live in discomfort but to be open to discomfort because in my mind and please you know tell me your thoughts on this but going into discomfort is also progress because now you're stepping into it and uh, you're growing right right right. And, yeah, yeah. No, please go, go. Yeah, no, no. I was just going to say, every time you go to the gym, that's discomfort. Yeah. Every time you go on a five-mile run, that's discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's what I'm talking about. That's that's discomfort. Every time you you go into the practice room to work on something that you haven't quite mastered, that's discomfort. And so I, I want to abolish this idea that that comfort is a virtue and that discomfort is the bad guy. Right. Discomfort is where growth happens, right? You know, when you're going through adolescence, you have growing pains. It's yeah. discomfort because your body is changing at this incredible rate. You know, imagine if you could hit the pause button on that and just be like, oh, ow, my knee's hurt this morning because I'm 12 years old and my legs are literally growing overnight. <laughs> oh, that's that's uncomfortable. Hit pause. No, it's fine, mom. I'll just be four foot two forever. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that's and so, you know, don't no disrespect to dudes out there who are four foot two. Yeah, I'm just, you know, I just picked that as an example. It's just that, yeah, discomfort, discomfort is not the enemy. Um, complacency is comfort is the enemy. And again, I'm not talking about roof over your head comfort. To me, right. that's not comfort. That's that's survival. Right. We need that that needs to be addressed before anything. Roof over your head, food in your stomach, medicine if you need it. That's that's survival. I, that's not comfort. That's not what I'm talking about. Totally. Um, you know, it's it's the stuff that you elect to do that you don't need to do, right? Nobody I like the way ne- you worded that. Nobody needs to write a piece of music. You don't need to do that. The world might not need that in a survival sense. You need to do it because human beings are meant to create things out of their discomfort, Right. You go do something uncomfortable, you discover something, and then you want to share that with other human beings so that they might resonate with it, right? Yeah. That's that's one of the burdens of being a human being. You have stuff in your head, and you know that other human beings have stuff in your head, and you want to know how much of the stuff in your head maps onto the stuff in their head. Yeah. And so you're like, well, I'm going to do something uncomfortable. I'm going to create something plop it out into the into the into this society that I happen to engage in and if folks raise their hands and say yes that's a thing that's in my head too that's something I wished had been in existence then that makes you feel good right so you plunge into the lake of discomfort and try to dredge up something that everybody can then eat from Mm. right and then that makes you feel good makes you feel more connected to these other human animals um, and, and I think that's why we do what we do. Right. And so, you know, it's funny where we go, Oh, well, there's no need to create. Actually, I, there is, there's a deep need to create. There's a deep need to see whether or not 
these other human animals that exist in this plane of reality with you vibe with what's going on inside your head. Yeah. And I think too, with the, the, the word create or being creative, um, I think a lot of people misconstrue that with, uh, or, uh, um, what word am I trying to say? Equate that to being artistic. And right. I, I think that's inaccurate. I think that's wholly inaccurate. 100%. You know, I'm the only professional musician in my immediate or extended family. Mm -hmm. um, and people go, wow, well, you know, that's that's really remarkable then that that you ended up being a creative person. And you didn't come from a creative family. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Hold on. <laughs> I didn't say that because my dad for a side gig, learned how to build these beautiful fences and hardwood decks. Like, he never took a class in this. He never, you know, went to school for carpentry or anything like that. He was just like, you know what? I really like building fences. I really like building decks. And so he built his own. And then some friends came over one time and they were like, wait, who built this for you? And he said, ah, I did. <laughs> and then they said, well, could you build mine? And then he actually ended up starting a, a business. And it just started because he wanted a deck or he wanted a fence to go around our backyard. And he said, no, I'll do it. I'll figure out how to do it. And then, and then my mom gave birth to three kids. She maintains this beautiful, I'm talking better homes and gardens level garden in her backyard. Hardly anybody sees it except for her. Right. That's creative energy. That's deeply creative energy. She she just made my sister's wedding cake. It is gorgeous. It is beyond gorgeous. She never went to school for it, never took classes in it. She was just like, I'm going to learn how to make wedding cakes so I can make my daughter's. And she did. And I mean, just this incredibly delicate beautiful like piping of these flowers that all looked identical going around the other i mean it was absolutely beautiful cake my mom never went to school for that never took classes for that just wanted to learn how to do it and then learn how to do it yeah that is creative energy my dad building decks is creative energy raising chickens is creative energy writing a symphony is creative energy it's all the same right oh my god all the same right Totally. Wanting, wanting to have sex with your partner is creative energy. Yes. Painting the walls of your living room is creative energy. There's no need for that. You want to do it so that maybe, as I said, a friend comes over, they see the color that you chose, they vibe with it, and you feel a little less alone in this universe. Totally, man. Oh, my right? God. That's why we create shit. I feel like this whole episode thus far has been dispelling what certain words mean, like, or disproving whatever, you know. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like yeah. the idea of what an artist is, the definition of creativity, you know, uh, like living in discomfort, what that means. Right. Yeah. We're in it, man. We're, we're in it. Pick another word. Fuck it. Let's like, let's, let's try to, let's try to blow up some more balloons or pop others. No, um, actually, I, I have one in mind that's like, that go for ringing. It. So we're talking about um, creativity and and the impetus behind that and the word that keeps coming to my head is purpose purpose what are your yeah. thoughts on just i'm not even going to say anything else besides that word what are your thoughts in that relating to this discussion 
I think purpose is something that is that's a little trickier to nail down. And I think our purpose sometimes isn't something that comes from inside us. Um, I think sometimes purpose is something that, that emanates from that union collective unconscious. Um, I think purpose is something that might be one of those archetypes um, where we try to decipher how we can be of most use to the greatest number of people possible. I think purpose is something that we establish thinking about our relationship to the multitude of people around us, both our nuclear family, the people we encounter every day, the people that we've never met. Um, and so I think our purpose is asking ourselves, what is my position relative to all of these different groups of people um, who are various degrees of separation away from me, right? What is my purpose to the people who live under my roof? What is my purpose to my parents? What is my purpose to the people I see at least once a week? What is my purpose to the entire globe? Um, and so I think when it comes to questions of purpose, we have to we have to go through that process of individuation, of finding out who the true self is devoid of persona. Ooh, wow, okay. That's that's where the purpose lies, right? <laughs> um, and And I think the more we recognize the difference between that which is our persona and that which is our ego, we come closer and closer to finding what purpose is. So, so are you saying that with purpose separate from being creative or, or, or um, is more of uh, through your lived experience and, and gathering, you know, um, like whatever events or opportunities you have throughout your life and then recognizing at some point, like through your interaction with these people, like you said, your family, your friends, your, your peers, your colleagues, that at some point you're, you, you, you gather a sense of what that, what your purpose is. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think purpose is an extension of empathy. Hmm. And I think people who are devoid of empathy have no purpose. People who are devoid of empathy have no purpose. Right. Wow. I, th I think purpose comes from that stripping away of persona and how you interface with other people. That's what your purpose is. And if your purpose is something that seems inherently individual and selfish, I promise you, if it's your true purpose, you're still doing it for other people. Right. You're still doing it thinking about how you can connect with other people, right? How you can join that that link how you can form that chain with these other human creatures that are running around on this planet and 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 i think that's i think that's a function of empathy mm -hmm. i think that's also why uh 
people who are in the creative arts tend to like substances that increase their empathetic reaction. Mm. I think there's a reason why a lot of creative people enjoy psychedelic substances because those substances enhance their ability to empathetically connect with others. And they go, right, that's my purpose, right? right. That's, that's the whole reason I want to do this, right? Um, I think that's why in the time of pandemic, so many creative artists mentally struggle so mightily and rightfully so. They are missing that empathetic connection in the way that they've learned to establish it over years or decades of a career. Mm. That's hard. That's very hard because that empathy generates their purpose. Right. Right. So rarely I find does a purpose come from within. It comes from without. The more in tune you are with your family, with your friends, with your community, with your nation, with your world, your purpose becomes pretty clear in a hurry. Mm. Your purpose becomes pretty clear in a hurry when you stop thinking about your own persona. That's interesting. I, I like that a lot. I like I like uh, thinking about that you're you know what you're saying it's more of an uh, external and right. less, less coming from yourself and, and recognizing, you know, your position and how you affect or impact people around you. Right. Right. And, and, and I think that's, I think a lack of empathy creates a lack of purpose. Mm -hmm. And then that lack of purpose leads to people feeling lost, people feeling angry. Um, I think it also accounts for people's willingness to, submit to authoritarian figures, you know, because they lack empathy for those around them. They lack purpose. And if they lack purpose, then they try to fill that void with a purpose that is given to them by someone who wants to control them. And, and I think that's, I think that's a serious, mm, I want to choose my words carefully here. I think that's a serious cultural disease that we have to actively fight against. Um, I think that's something that, that we have to be vigilant in generating. I think we need to generate empathy as much as possible as human beings, because from that empathy comes purpose, right? Um, anyway. Just, just, just my two cents. I'm, I'm, I'm musing here. No, no, I, 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 I'm enjoying on, this a on lot. a Wednesday night, it's... a week after a major election. I'm, I'm musing <laughs> about the nature of empathy and purpose. But... Yeah. Oh, I think it's completely uh, uh, necessary, and and it's a hundred percent welcome. I mean, I love, I love that you're getting so deep into this and and and, and pursuing this sort of like uh, what is what is exactly the definition of purpose and everything. Um, right. And it, well, it, you know, I also think a lot about how empathy leading to purpose is also connected to the strange attractor, right? The idea that history isn't generated by what's happened in the past, but by some 
unspecified unknown event in the future, right? We think of history as backward looking when in fact history might be something that is dictated from an event in the future, right? The strange attractor, that which pulls us forward. And I think the closer we come to empathizing with a maximum number of human beings and also with our environment as a whole, the, the more we empathize with the totality of what we are sharing in our experience on this planet, the, 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 the clearer our purpose becomes, the, the clearer it, that, that, that end point in the future that is pulling history toward it becomes. Mm. We don't know what that moment is. Uh, you know, what Ray Kurzweil described it as the singularity, right? That moment of fusing of, of human consciousness with machines that might then connect human consciousness around the globe. Um, you know, now I'm really kind of off in the deep end, but I, I think there's something to that, you know? That's an interesting path for sure. I mean, I, I wonder how much of that uh, is reflected in, in our use of social media and stuff. Well, right. I mean, and, and, and that's something that, you know, any Star Trek fan will tell you that maybe the strange attractor is some unknown event in the future that that reconnects all human beings around the globe as a single tribe again. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, that's that's the central premise behind behind Star Trek as a universe. Right. Is that is that human beings realize we are not alone. That's the strange attractor in the future. And from that point forward, we get our shit together. Right. I hope that's the case. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed, right? Um, that that will be the moment where we come back to recognizing our, our the global tribe. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want, I don't use that word lightly. That the, or so I, I perhaps I should say the global the global unit, uh, the, the, the global being of a collective human consciousness, mm. um, that, that we will have that moment where we recognize in each other that we're all just, you know, there's, there's this life force, there's this energy in which all of us are just these little tendrils poking out for, you know, heaven willing 70 80 or so years and then bloop, we just disappear right back into it yeah um, and so the more we recognize that we're all just these little tendrils shooting up from this giant reservoir of humanity the better off we are and so empathy recognizing that your tendril and my tendril are actually from the same source that gives us a purpose to want to rejoin and reconnect with that larger reservoir and I think that connects to what we do as creative artists, mm -hmm. right? Is we are empathy generators. That's what we do. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's very accurate, with, especially with composing. I mean, right. we, we write this music because we want to, it's like, like film, we want to uh, elicit an emotional response. Yes. You know, and which I think is what art is in general. It's like emotion, it's eliciting an intellectual and emotional response. Right. Yes, and, and, and that's the thing, too. I, to me, my favorite works of art, my favorite pieces of music, whatever you want to think about it, 
manages to elicit the emotional, the intellectual, the spiritual, the physical response, all of those responses, right? Those different types of responses, because if you manage to do that and you recognize in some other human being that that they derive the, those same responses too, again, it's that, hey, wait, yeah, you're a tendril. I'm a tendril. Right. We're tendrils together. <laughs> We're cool. We're cool. This is good, right? <clears throat> so that that creative impulse is an empathy generator, which leads to purpose, which connects us to that that human reservoir. Um, and so I think that's that's why the creative impulse is so universal, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter where we go. We're all seeking to want to connect with one another and say, "Hey, wait a second. We're all we're all tendrils, right? We're all tendrils from that same reservoir." doesn't matter right you know i it's it it is astonishing to me that i can listen to a piece of music written by a lutheran in germany in 1720 and it moves me to tears yeah that's incredible that's absolutely incredible it's absolutely it's it's it blows my mind that i can listen to indonesian gamelan and my brain just feels like it's on fire. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, it's that recognizing of that mutual tendril quality that we have. It's amazing to reference, you know, like Bach or anyone from uh, so far removed in space and time to right. think about like at some point, whenever he wrote that piece, like he had to, take whatever he used to write with, I don't know what the hell he used, and put that on a piece of paper to to create the score. And then here right. we are in 2020 and we listen to that and it moves us emotionally. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely mind-blowing. It's, it's unbelievable. Mind-blowing, right? You want to talk about time travel. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. You can listen to a piece by Hildegard von Bingen from almost a millennium ago. <laughs> yeah. I go, wait a second. All right. Sis, how's it going on? I love it. That's gorgeous. Thank you for sharing that gift. A thousand years into oh, yeah. the future. Yeah. What the actual fuck, Adam? I, I that know. That blows my mind. And she wasn't thinking on those timescales. I don't think any human being can. I think you can feel on those timescales, though. Mm-hmm. You can't conceive of it. You can only hope to connect with the community and and the specific culture around you and then if it happens to resonate down down the temporal path then you know congratulations yeah <laughs> you know but even then that's not a requirement uh for it to have been great art you know i think sometimes we we make that mistake of saying oh great art is that which is universal and timeless right no now. no it's right. not no, it's not. If 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 great art moves twenty thousand people to tears one time and one time only in one place, I don't know, man. I still think that's pretty great. That is insanely great. I right? Mean, it's insanely great. It, you, know? it, you it makes me. I think about when I used to play. I used to play. I mentioned earlier I was really into punk rock, and so like for like eight or ten years, I played in a punk band. And yeah. uh, there was this one show we had at this bar 
not far, like 10 minutes from where I lived. Right. So everyone I knew was there. There had to have been like maybe 40 people. It wasn't a crazy amount, right? but, but the bar was small enough to where it was filled. Yeah. Everyone was singing along. That's everyone it, was dancing. Right. And like that experience of the music that me and my band wrote will never happen again. Yeah. But in that one moment with us and those 40 people, however many there were, it was, uh, it was, it was a powerful experience. And I, like, like you said earlier with your, with you and Megan performing and you hit that note and it's perfectly in tune, you know? Right, right, right. And and you never forget that. Do you ever think about, you know, you ever wonder if there were straight, like people who are strangers to you who were in that bar that night, who right now, might be talking with someone like, oh man, there was this band I heard and it was such a great day. You ever think about that? I uh, Pretty incredible. It it is incredible, but it actually makes me think of something completely related, which is um, one time my band played a show in in Trenton, New Jersey, which is the state capital, right? Right. Trenton is like central Jersey. I lived in Northwestern New Jersey, kind of like a half hour from the Pennsylvania border, an hour from the upstate New York border, right? Okay. Right in the Appalachian Mountains, basically. Um, So Trenton was like an hour and a half from where I lived. And we played this show there. It was a great show. And there was this band, these dudes who were like maybe in their early 40s, mid 40s. And they were like, yeah, we're from Lake Hopacon. And that's the town I was from. And I'm like, well, I've never heard of these guys. And so I went up to the singer afterward and I was like, I was like, dude, you guys are from Opacon? So am I. And he's like, oh, not us, our, our bass player. And I was like, oh. And so I went to talk to him. I'm like, hey, man, you're from Opacon? He's like, yeah, I just moved there. And I was like, oh, no shit, where'd you move? And, he, and he's like, oh, I live on Jefferson Trail. And I'm like, dude, that's right around the corner from my house. And wow. I, was like, I was like, what house did you move into? And he's like, oh, I moved into 28 Jefferson Trail. And I'm like, dude, that was my best friend's house who literally just moved out of there. <laughs> Wow, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, it that's was crazy. incredible. Right? And to, to further, like, you know, the amazing, the beauty of this story, um, when my buddy's dad was selling that house, this is when we were, like, 20, 21 years old. When, when my buddy's dad was selling that house, um, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with the Misfits, the punk band? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're the, the, the Crimson Skull, they're, yep. like, iconic. Yeah, yeah. My buddy painted the Crimson Skull on the basement door in their house. And his dad, when he was trying to like make the house look nice when they were selling, yeah. he's like, you got to get rid of that because it's not going to yeah. sell. Right, right. The dude who bought the house said he bought it because of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is fantastic. <laughs> so, I mean, it, 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 it relates in a sense, you know, with what you're, with, with your question about, right. like, um, you know, experiencing something with someone else completely disconnected as a stranger and like, uh, in some way it relates, I guess, but... Yeah, no, I, absolutely it does. There was a creative expression that some other be- human being witnessed and said, this is the house I'm going to buy because of that. Right. It, yeah, that's part of that that beautiful cosmic clockwork that I don't think we've, we've come close to understanding as human beings. Uh, but, you know, we keep trying. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing, I think, especially, um, I mean and this isn't even a bad thing either but um just the reality of it is everyone is their own person right like we're each like everyone's an individual who has certain interests and personality traits and like certain experiences in their life that when they 
listen to a piece of music, it, it filters through that experience, you know? Right, right, right. So no one's ever going to have the same reaction to like the same piece of music where like, if I listen to box, um, BWV 82, right. Uh, I can't remember the name of the cantata, but like that just like hits me. I'm like, Oh my God. Ooh, that <laughs> this is the most it. powerful thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right, right. But I have no doubt that like any other person who doesn't listen to classical music at all might listen to it and be like, okay. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Well, you know, going back to what you were talking about, how like everybody, everybody is their own person. I think, yes, there's, there's something to be said for the individual perspective that every human being can bring but then again also recognizing that your consciousness is something that is inherently limited Mm -hmm. um and that may not in fact be entirely your own you know a a really great uh terence mckenna quote uh where he he said i don't believe consciousness is generated in in the brain um any more than television programs are made inside my tv the box is too small. Right, right. Right. And that's such an incredible quote. Um, and, and I, you know, thinking about that, quote, that's, you know, think about the fact that human consciousness might not in fact be the kind of individualistic window that, that we like to imagine it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, you know, if others don't share the perspective that we do, that's okay. Right. You know, I think, in fact, recognizing that that your consciousness might be that tiny TV actually helps you empathize with people whose perspective is different than yours. Because then you could just be like, oh, well, their tiny TV picks up different radio or picks up different TV stations. Totally. Right. Totally. So if and because if you if you think of your individual thoughts as something that are so precious, then it's easier to become defensive mm-hmm. when somebody else doesn't see things that totally. way yeah but but if you think of it as just like no no no, these just happen to be the thoughts that 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 this these thoughts are things that happen to be just the channels that my particular tiny four inch tv picks up right and if your tiny four inch tv picks up a completely different set of channels that doesn't mean that your tv doesn't work yeah. Well, so this sort of makes me think about um, going back to the suffering artist thing is like because the art we create, what we create, regardless if it's art, uh, it, it makes us vulnerable because we just put something out there that was like, here's something that I believe in. And when people right. say no, you know, it's like you retreat, you know, like, <laughs> well, exactly right. And, and then it's helpful to think that if you put out a broadcast and somebody didn't watch it, maybe their TV literally just couldn't even pick it up. Right. Right. Or maybe if, if their TV did pick it up, they were really invested in a different channel at the same time. Mm-hmm. All of those situations are okay. That doesn't make your broadcast bad. You know, 
And so, you know, you don't, the answer is that, well, if I only suffered harder, maybe <laughs> their TV would have picked it up and they would have tuned in. Right. No, you just have to accept that it's okay. Yeah. And it's not a, it's not a reflection on your moral character. It's <laughs> fine. It's fine. You're doing okay. And you're okay. You know, I, and yeah. And so I, again, I think if we are empathetic to others, we recognize that their TVs just might pick up different channels than ours. Mm -hmm. And if you're not empathetic, then you go, well, this person's TV is broken. I should probably smash it. Oh, totally. Yeah. They're still and running so, on tubes and, you know, yeah. Yeah. Black and, and so, white. Exactly. And so I think our task as all human beings is to expand in any way we can the number of channels our TV picks up. You okay. know, we are born with one channel and it broadcasts snow, right? It's one channel and it's static, right? <laughs> and then eventually that one channel just becomes the face of our parents, Right. And then as we get older, we learn to, to slowly turn the knobs in different ways. And, oh, if I if I turn the knob, this knob this way and this knob this way and adjust the antenna this way, I pick up a, a station that's actually pretty far from here. But that's pretty cool. I want to see what's going on over there. So I think as we evolve as human beings, we try to find more and more ways of picking up more channels and broadcasting what we're doing to more and more people, mm. right? And then, and then I think a problem occurs when you have a society, you know, that's stuck on three channels from the 1960s, and they get really upset when so many other people have done the hard work of increasing the number of channels that they get, and they think they're entitled to that same amount of channels despite having not done the work, and they get mad, they get jealous, well, I have to smash that person's TV because that person picks up 500 channels and I only pick up three. So rather than expanding the number of channels that I have by 497, I'm just going to break their fucking TV and that'll show them. <laughs> we'll make TV great again. That, well, oh, wow. Yeah. It, right. It's on its path. It's on its path. I think, I, I think it is. I think it is genuinely. I think we are going through growing pains as as a species. Yeah. That's hard. And that's hard to admit. We've been here so little time. Human be like rewind time just a couple of thousand years which in the cosmic span of things is a blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. We like despite all of our pretensions, we are apes that have figured out cell phones. Congratulations. <laughs> we have so much more spiritual progress to do. So much more. And it might take time on a scale that makes us really uncomfortable to think about. Yeah, well, one thing that I think is is um, uh, an interesting perspective to have, which relates to this, is um, I don't know how accurate this is, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is, is su supposedly... Like even even talking about like you're talking about our 
place in history and the universe, right? But even right. looking at the history of humankind is yes. that the, the amount of people who are living in this current moment is right. su- supposedly less than 8% ever. Right. Like, like the amount of people who have ever been alive and who are dead now. Right. The people who are alive now it only makes like 7% of that or something. Right. You know? Yeah, that's absolutely incredible when you think about, again, the ancestors right. that, have come be- <laughs> that have come before us um, and, and that we will never know. But again, I think in a very real way, we are still connected to through that collective unconscious, right? The myths that we create are not fundamentally different than the myths that they created thousands of years ago. Yeah. Right. It's so funny because it, it like we see how absolutely ubiquitous and, and popular superhero movies have become. Mm. That's not anything new. Right. That's not anything new. How is, you know, what is fundamentally different about a culture that heavily invested in seeing the further adventures of Luke Skywalker from a culture heavily invested in knowing what happens next to Odysseus? Lightsabers. That's about Lightsabers. <laughs> Although I would argue that maybe Homer's Odyssey could benefit from the use of lightsabers. There's uh, a lot to be to be uh, hopeful there. There's, there's like... a, a, a new hope. Yeah, a will, new right, <laughs> right. No, I mean, but you know, again, if you think about it, we are only five thousand three hundred years removed from thinking, "Hey, wow, you know what's a really killer idea? Bronze." Oh yeah. That's only 5,000 years ago that we're like, wow, we are cutting edge motherfuckers. Check this <laughs> out. Bronze, we've got it. Wrap it up. We're done here. You know, dust the hands off. We're like, we crushed it. We crushed it. We have no idea what logic and reason are. Haven't figured out science. We have no idea. Like, this predates <laughs> monotheistic religion yeah. we've got bronze wrap it up we've crushed it right for the scotch we're good like for the scotch we're good nailed it right write the letter home to mom bronze is it go all in on bronze it's the bitcoin of 3300 bc i love that right? And so here we are in 2020 only 5000 years later 5000 and change and, you know, we're like, oh, well, gee whiz, we still haven't figured out this and this and this and this and this. Well, hey, maybe we should take it easy on ourselves. Mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. like let's we're getting there. Progress might just be a little slower than what we want it to be. It is a little dangerous that we're kind of like fucking up the planet in a way that isn't going to be very germane to the existence of the human species. Maybe we want to work against that. Um, you know, again, maybe we should be thinking about the well-being of other people before we try to put a Mercedes in every garage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I think, I think we need a radical reprioritization of how we regard other human beings 
as tendrils of a collective human consciousness. And I do think that art making plays a critical role in that. I think it is needed. I think it is necessary. I think it's fundamental to the idea of our survival as a species that we continue to create stuff. Sure. Because in creating stuff, in sharing it, in understanding that other human beings see and understand what we might see and understand that maybe we'll come closer to that idealized, continuous, empathetic state that human beings, I believe, should strive for. I like that. That's, that's, um, oh. And that's as close as I'm going to come to a thesis statement tonight, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great one. To, I think that's know. it. I think that's it. That's as close as I'm going to come with two fingers of scotch on a Wednesday night to putting forth my, my personal philosophy. What is, what is something that you would like to see in the most immediate future in regards toward this thesis? Like, let's, like, immediate future. So let's, let's make that, like, I don't know, a year. I think a great first step would be for everyone to get stoned. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I got to be honest. I was not expecting that. I think that would be a great first step. I think that would be a great first step. So, uh, so basically letting loose, freeing the mind, like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just take a step back and let's just appreciate that we're here. Yes. If I, if, if, if drugs were absolutely legal and I were a billionaire um, I, I would absolutely send 10 tabs of acid to every citizen in the United States. There you go. There you go. I think that's right? a, that's a solution. Yes. I think, I think everybody simultaneously ingesting five grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms would radically alter the state of human consciousness in a positive, fundamentally positive way. Now, are you... <laughs> Are you familiar? You weren't expecting this shit from me tonight, were you? No, Here not at all. I, I, I love everything. I wasn't expecting any of this conversation, and I mean that in a good way, too. <laughs> Perfect. Great. I'm going to pour more scotch while we're at it. Please. I'm, I'm actually at that point, too. Um, yeah. you, do you follow the comedian Bill Burr? Oh, 100%. Yeah. This makes me think of his bit that he said a few times, which I particularly enjoy, which is... Uh, uh, a certain amount of the percentage of the population has to be eliminated, right? <laughs> that that is such a Bill Burr line. That is such a Bill Burr line. So, in, yeah. so my thought, <laughs> maybe this is me being cynical. Um, in in sending ten tablets of acid to every person in the in the world, right? Something bad is going to happen to a certain select few people. Would you adopt that Billabur mindset where it's like, all right, well, someone needs to be eliminated? <laughs> well, I mean, at least they might go happy. But right. actually, I don't think it would. I, I think a lot of people would just stop and recognize how malleable time is, how much time they actually have, and the embarrassing wealth of resources that we all have available to us. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I have to completely piggyback on that. Like my, um, the, the cell phone, 
the smartphone the cell phone the smartphone yep. i think is this is um the most undeniably um just useful resource that we have yes and, yes it is and i think anyone who has one which most people do uh yep has potential yes for whatever and and uh, obviously there are obstacles and certain barriers that certain people experience in certain ways but having that you have the literally almost the world yes you're just absolutely you know yeah i uh this is a vulgar metaphor but i i like to think of cell phones as technological masturbation oh yeah there's absolutely nothing wrong with it it's absolutely healthy it could be so positive it could be such a tool for discovering who you are and what you need and what you want mm -hmm. um if you spend all of your time doing it, you, you might miss out on some things. Right. Um, and so it's like any other technology, um, it, is, it is morally neutral. And I feel the same way about psychedelic substances. They are morally neutral. Um, it is a technology. Mm -hmm. It is a technology that we can use to expand our sphere of consciousness. Um, and if we use them in an enlightened and sensitive and careful way, I think the benefits can be extraordinary. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> they say there's a war on drugs and yet there's a drugstore on every corner. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't like to think of the fact that, uh, any civilization makes decisions about any culture makes decisions about its drugs. Mm -hmm. um, there are drugs that it accepts and then there are drugs that it forbids. Mm -hmm. um, and the United States is absolutely a drug culture, like so many other cultures around the world. It just so happens that our drugs are caffeine, alcohol, and meat. Those are our drugs. In fact, so many unions have prescribed drug breaks in the form of the coffee break. We don't bat an eye about that. Oh my gosh, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee in the morning. We are ingesting a drug, caffeine. That's totally fine. You and I sit here and we drink scotch. It's fine. That is an approved drug. Right. But then there are other drugs that we forbid. Um, and so any culture can, can, oddly enough, be defined by the drugs it forbids and the drugs it permits. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to note that the drugs that the United States tends to forbid, a lot of them are substances that are recognized in so many other parts of the world as expanding consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's really peculiar. And what's unfortunate is that our language is really limited. We use the word drug to talk about aspirin, psilocybin mushrooms, and crack. Right. Yeah, it's an umbrella sort of term. That's an umbrella sort of term. Consider the nuance of language that we apply to so many other aspects of our existence. And yet when it comes to these substances, they fall under the umbrella drug. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that does us a grave disservice as we seek to progress as human consciousness growers, as we seek to expand who it is that we think we are and how we relate to other human beings, you know? Um, so I think there's, I think there's a reckoning coming, um, you know, and obviously the war on drugs started as a, as a racist ploy to disenfranchise people of color in the United States. And frankly, it's continued that way over the past 50 years consider how many people of color in the state of Florida alone who are not allowed to vote in the 2020 presidential election because of felony drug charges. Mm -hmm. That's a little political soapbox of mine. But um, I, I, I truly believe that, um, you know, again, we think of, we, you know, in the United States, we go to intoxicants that are permitted. And so we think about ingesting alcohol before we play a big band gig. We think about ingesting alcohol before we sit down to work on a string quartet we're composing. Mm -hmm. um, we think nothing of that. And yet somebody's suggesting, daring to suggest that we ingest a few grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms to possibly expand one consciousness one's consciousness and one's sense of empathy with other human beings before engaging in creative arts is a bit foreboding i find that peculiar yeah it, it's an interesting topic for sure um <clears throat> <sighs> but <laughs> i love the fact that you're like Holy shit, how did we get here in this conversation? <laughs> Where do I even steer this on this podcast episode? <laughs> Fuck, I should not. It was like, can I go back to talking to Megan now? <laughs> um, like... No, no, I, 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 I love where this is going. I mean, everything that we're talking about, it's... Um... If you can edit, like, if you want to, man, you can edit out this whole section. Man. Not at all. Like, no, all no, right, no. Okay. We're... If you want to, that's cool. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind it. I'm just saying that that. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to. Um, I mean, whatever. That's up to you, honestly. Whatever you feel comfortable <laughs> with. I don't want right. to put anything out there that you're, uh, you're reluctant to have the oh, masses absolutely. or your employer or anyone, whatever. You know. Yeah. No. You know. That's. Uh, I, it's. You know, as I said, I think I'm trying to be in 2020 far more honest about who I am mm -hmm. and uh, and what I believe and the things that I that that, that I vibe with. Um, we can we can move the conversation a little bit over and say that one of the things that that I've been really enjoying is, you know, some really purposeful meditation every single morning. Um, meditation every afternoon. Um, the other day, I spent forty-five minutes staring at a candle, and when oh, I got wow. done, and when I got done with it, I felt like I slept for eight hours. Holy shit! It was incredible. I stared at a candle for forty-five minutes. It was incredible. How how do you get to that point? I just did it. I I wanted to do it. I there was no build up to that. I woke up that morning and I said, this afternoon, I'm going to stare at a candle for 45 minutes. And then I did it. I love that directness and, and like, uh, I don't even know what the word is. Just like 
yeah, I'm going to do this thing now. And then that's I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Yeah. And it, it was uncomfortable. It was, it was uncomfortable. There it, it, is. it was, it was fun. <laughs> it was, it was fun or funny or peculiar for about five minutes. I set a timer and I said, okay, I'm going to start this candle until the timer goes off. And I think for about the first five minutes, it was fun. Mm-hmm. And then around minute 10, I got antsy, mm-hmm. like really antsy and uncomfortable. And then by minute 15, I was kind of in hell. I wanted nothing more than to stop. And then, but I kept going. And by the end of it, um, for the same reason that I'm not a runner, but my brother is. And, you know, you get to a point in any race when you want to stop running. Uh Every, Every molecule of your body is telling you, what are you doing, you fucking idiot? (laughs) Why are you running 26 miles? And then the joy comes from telling every molecule in your body to shut up. Uh It's that exercise of will and intent. That is what's powerful. And and then I got to a point where I stopped wanting something to happen. I stopped wanting to push thoughts out of my head and I just let thoughts happen. When the timer went off, I closed my eyes. And when I did, I saw the candle still burning behind my eyelids. I could see it still moving. And I just sat with that for a couple of minutes. And I realized that that energy that I watched intensely for 45 minutes is now reflected in my own consciousness. And I went about the rest of my evening truly feeling on cloud nine. It was an absolute, I mean, I I felt like I had just had four cocktails at the best party I'd ever had attended in my life. And I achieved that simply by looking at a candle for 45 minutes. And I also, in that experience, came further to the truth that time is far more expansive than what we think it is. We can achieve so much in 45 minutes. We can accomplish so much in 45 minutes. We can introspect so much in 45 minutes that Oftentimes when we go, oh my God, today's just so busy. I don't have the time. Oh yeah. It's fucking nonsense. Time, we have nothing but time. It's like, oh, life is short. No, life is long. <laughs> life is really long. We have so much time in life, you know? And that comes back to, you know, what Henry Rollins said mm-hmm. about time where he's like, you know, as human beings, we like, we are uncomfortable with, the idea of sitting through time. And so we break time up into different kinds of time to deal with that anxiety, right? There's breakfast time, there's work time, there's rest time, there's family time, there's nap time, there's bedtime, there's dinner time, there's feed the dog time, there's go for a walk time. That, that's not real. Yeah. There's just time. If you want to be working on a string quartet at 3 a.m., great. If you want to be sleeping at noon, Great. If you want to eat Cocoa Puffs at 10 p.m., great. No one's going to stop you. You can do that, right? If you want to call a friend that you haven't talked to in 20 years, you can literally do it this moment. There's nothing but time. Right. It's so expansive. It's I love so what expensive. you're saying right now. This is this is great. This is uh... right. And staring at that candle for 45 minutes helped me reconnect with that notion. And it's really powerful. 
Um, I think we fall into a trap of believing that time is limited because we are constantly smacked in the front of our fucking brains with dopamine hits. Mm -hmm. We are so addicted to that nonstop every four second dopamine hit. And that fucks up our perception of how much time we have. Yeah. It absolutely annihilates our perception of time. We think of, of stretching time or perceiving a stretch time as being unreality because time is so fleeting. I think it's exactly the opposite. Mm. I think this idea that time is compressed, I think that is the false reality. I think time is really long. And you experience that, like, take 48 hours and go out into the middle of the woods, leave all technology sit in a tent for 48 hours, you will truly discover just how long two days can be. Sure. Oh, totally. It's long. Totally. Yeah. I, I, um, I saw this study. I don't, it took place in like the seventies, I think. And they, they took these, this group of, of older men, like in their sixties or so. And they all lived in right. within like the same community and they brought them to, um, uh they did this experiment for like i think it was two weeks or maybe a little longer and this experiment was these men live in this in this house together but everything in that house was items and clothes that they wore when they were 20 Woo. and so through that whole experience of being there for two weeks they like they changed by the time they came out and they actually looked younger wow yes yeah. set and setting right there right and uh yes. and and like you mentioning the whole thing about like going into the woods and doing something being in a cabin for or whatever and for two days yeah. separate right. from anything else it's like you actually experience that no time is it's it's, it's like endless right and and, and the, the thing of it is it's like it doesn't require you know pulling a walden in order to realize that, take a look at your daily life, take a look at your schedule, take a look at your surroundings and see if you can calibrate them even in small ways to amplify the amount of time you perceive you have, right? Sleep with your cell phone in a different room. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Do that. I did not do that for years. That was a terrible mistake. Sleep <laughs> with your cell phone in a completely different room. When you wake up in the morning, take 15 minutes to stare at the ceiling and take deep breaths. Forget 15 minutes. Do it for 10. Mm -hmm. Set your alarm for 10 minutes earlier than when, when you quote unquote need to wake up. And when it goes off, Instead of like, oh, you know, hit the snooze, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of closing your eyes and rolling up in the covers again, open your eyes, stare at a point in the ceiling and take massive breaths in and massive breaths out. Do that for 10 minutes. See if your day doesn't unfold in a radically different way than it has previously. I guarantee it will. I, I I'm doing that tomorrow. I'm literally going to do that. I'm Do gonna, it. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Point down. at the ceiling and just take a breath in and a breath out. It reminds me of um, so the simplest meditation in the world is breath goes in, breath goes out. 
That's it. That's the easiest meditation in the world. A lot of people think of meditation as a thing where it's like, oh, I have to clear my mind. No, you don't. Actually, meditation is not a process of clearing your mind. It's creating the space to recognize the thoughts that are entering your mind. Right. Meditation is the process of recognizing that you and your thoughts are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right? That you are an observer. You are... You are not your thoughts. You are the entity that perceives these thoughts coming in. That's all meditation does. That's all meditation reminds you of. So when you're focusing on your breath coming in and your breath going out, you you focus on having that one click of removal between who you are and what your thoughts are. Mm. You know, and I've, I've talked to people who say, oh, I've tried meditation. I'm just not good at it. Saying you're not good at meditation is like saying you're not good at peeing. Right. Right. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Like, did you do it? Well, then congratulations. Yeah. You're great. I guarantee you, everybody listening to this podca- podcast right now is an excellent peer. Right? Yeah. You just allow it to happen. Unless it comes out your neck. Unless it comes out your neck, in which case, something doctor, off. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so... And so nobody is bad at meditation. The easiest meditation to do is breath goes in, you recognize it, breath goes out. Meditation is an argument you just had with a family member screaming inside your head. That's okay. Mm -hmm. You're still meditating. You're taking a moment to recognize a breath going in and a breath going out. Because fundamentally you are even subconsciously recognizing the transitory nature of all things. Totally. That's, that's, I love that. And that's what you're doing by simply breath goes in, breath goes out. It's a six word meditation. It's so simple, but in doing so, you are acknowledging the transitory nature of all things. And so if you start your day with 10 minutes of breath goes in, breath goes out, you begin, you kickstart your day, you turn the ignition on the vehicle that is your daily experience with recognizing the transitory nature of all things. So later in the day, when something pisses you off, you go, breath goes in, breath goes out. It's going to pass. It's going to be fine. Or when you experience a particular joy, you pay more attention to it because you go, oh, breath goes in, yeah, breath goes out. It's gonna, it's, it will, it, this too will evaporate, right? So I better pay attention to it. It becomes so much easier to dismiss the negative and to relish the positive when you start every single day with breath goes in, breath goes out. That, Acknowledging the transitory nature. Yeah, and that's, that's I, I, I uh, had a conversation about this on a previous podcast where, like it's too easy for us to to wallow, or is that the word wallow? Yeah, um, absolutely. In, in the negative, you know. Right. And uh, and and going to what you said about sleeping with your phone in the other room and like yes. waking up, it's like um, waking up and instantly looking at your phone is yes. probably the worst way to start your day. It is. Uh, apart from someone punching you in the face. <laughs> Or, or your house being on the, fire. Exactly. <laughs> or waking up in the middle of the night because you're being robbed. Oh, yeah. The worst way of waking up. It truly is. And the reason for it is that consider and this, like I had an alarm 
on my phone for many years. That's how I woke up. But here's the problem. The second you wake up to an alarm on your phone and you turn it off, guess what? Your phone is already in your hand. You are just a swipe away from checking those notifications, from looking at that email, from looking to see who texted you for some bizarre reason at 4 a.m., and now you are training your mind. Your consciousness has been online for three seconds and you are setting it in motion for the rest of your conscious experience for the rest of your day to desire dopamine hits constantly. Totally. This destroys your sense of how much time you have. It truly does. And so when you put it in a separate room, your sense of how much time you have is so expansive. When you take 10 minutes to do a breathing meditation to start your day, instead of looking at your phone, how much time you perceive you have from that point until the time you go to sleep again that night is fundamentally 180 degrees the opposite of your experience from looking at your phone immediately. You just laid it out, man. I I just laid it out. I I I want to share that clip right there. Do it, babe. <laughs> with Do it. everyone and be like, you need to be. You know, I mean, there's there's so much more that you've said that is also brilliant. And no, I'm saying, that's, that's okay. Like clip. this has been a two hour conversation. Like really? the tagline for the, yes, the <laughs> time is expansive. <laughs> Take. Take that moment and make that like the make that the teaser, right? When you post on social media, I guess. But like it's it's absolutely true. And then what ends up happening is that when you recognize that time is far more expansive than what we think it is, then you go, and this goes to one of the questions that you emailed me where you're like, oh yeah, I'd like to chat about this, mm -hmm. you know, balancing all these different things that that I do in my career. You recognize the fact where you go, oh. I have 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. I could totally work on this part of this piece I'm working on. Yeah. Oh, I have 15 minutes. That's enough time for me to wet a read and get a warm up in for the day. So is that is that how you operate? A lot of the times, yeah. Yeah. And another part of it too is that when you recognize how precious and expansive time is, um, you tend to not tolerate the bullshit that other people will try to foist upon. Yes, thank you. You will tend to deny that even, and it doesn't have to be in an ugly way. Mm -hmm. It could be really, it could be incredibly politely, mm -hmm. right? I think what ends up happening, I was thinking about this just earlier on today, is that there's a certain amount of nonsense that the world will throw at you mm. just naturally. And that's, that's going to happen. And I'm t by the world and existence, I mean, there's a certain amount of a flat tire, an illness, a death in the family. Like there's a certain amount of that, that will happen that is chaotic and random and it's unexplained. We cannot account for it. Mm -hmm that there's going to be a percentage of that in your life. Fine. And so that's the discomfort that existence will throw at you. And 
I think what happens is mistakenly people will go, well, there's a certain amount of discomfort that existence will throw at me. Why would I possibly want to put more discomfort on myself? So I'm going to put that discomfort level at zero. I'm going to put the discomfort level that I put on myself at 0%. And I think that's a mistake. And it's a reaction, right? And so what ends up happening is, let's say you have 100% discomfort that the human psyche can allow, right? That the human soul can allow. And existence throws 40% at you. 40% of your total discomfort is just shit that will happen, right? I think as a res- like I think in response to that, people see that they're like, wow, 40 like I'm getting all of this crap in my life and it's chaotic and it's unpredictable. I'm going to minimize the amount of discomfort I bring into my own life. That doesn't bring that 40% down at all. What it does is it allows the discomfort that other people will put on you and put and sets that at 60%. It amplifies it. It amplifies it. Yep. But if you put your own discomfort level at 30%, at 40%, at 50%, the amount of discomfort you allow other people to bring into your life mm-hmm. goes down. So true. The amount that existence throws at you will remain invariant. It's you're right. You cannot change that. Mm-hmm. But if you willfully engage in your in creating your own discomfort, the thing that goes down is the amount of discomfort you tolerate from other people bringing into your life. You know, you you expend a lot less energy worrying about that argument that you just had with a sibling when you're like. Well, I got 90 minutes of practice I have to put in today. Yeah, yeah. You when some when a coworker asks you to do their job for you or when a coworker asks you to do a job their job for them, yeah. it's a lot easier to tell them no when you go, "Sorry, on Saturday I already have a 5-mile run planned." Right. Yeah. So in increasing the discomfort that you elect, what you're actually minimizing is the discomfort that you allow other people to bring into your life. And the discomfort that existence will throw at you, even though that remains invariant, you will feel more confident in battling. Because you're like, I bring 40% of discomfort into my life on a regular basis just because of me, just because I want to. Oh, flat tire? Screw it. I can figure that out. <laughs> I fucking got it. I got it. Oh, <laughs> I, I I just got sick and it took me out for 10 days and I'm behind at work? Screw it. I got it. Yeah. Let me write a symphony. Yeah. Yeah. I just finished writing a symphony and performing a recital and planting a garden in my backyard. <laughs> Fine. Screw it. I got a flat tire. What I love is you're like, you're pointing out that by, by spending time in discomfort, you actually become impervious to it yes. when it's, when it's like some, someone else bringing it on to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I think 
pulling this whole conversation full circle to almost two hours ago, I think that's why minimizing our personal dis our our personal discomfort is a horrible mistake. I, I'm it's a totally, horrible mistake totally for so you. many reasons. Mm-hmm. For so many reasons, right? Yeah. It disempowers us. It disempowers us. You know, like the amount of bullshit that my brother tolerates in his life is at a staggering minimum. This is a guy who runs 33 miles at a stretch. God. And that... he work he he works he works a a a full job like he gets up early, goes and works a full job, will run double digits miles every single day. He has a wife, a house, a yard, a six-year-old, and he crushes it. Hell yeah. He crushes it. Your brother's and the man. I, my brother is the man, and he manages to make that happen, I think, because he elects to bring discomfort into his life. I, I Dude, I love that, man. I love that. Even that, that, that wording, like, elects to bring, like, it also makes it to me, I'm also hearing like being selective about the discomfort you're allowing to be. Absolutely. Life, you know? Absolutely. Because again, discomfort is not suffering. Mm-hmm. Right? When when we suffer, we we are experiencing pain that is inescapable and not not of our own volition. Mm-hmm. And I think confusing discomfort, confusing struggle with suffering is a big mistake. You know, suffering exists in the world. It's, it's something, it's, it, it's, it's part of the human condition. Like we will, we will all encounter suffering. The question is how much of that suffering will we Wait, I want to be very careful how I say this. We can confuse what we elect in our lives as suffering with actual suffering. So I I, I want to try to distinguish it, if you don't mind. Like, sure. Distinguish suffering from discomfort. Like, how would you define suffering? Um, again, uh, to me, suffering is something, and maybe that's what I refer to as the 40% of existential discomfort, mm-hmm. right? Um, suffering is something that threatens our survival in a way that we did not choose. So suffering might be a catastrophic illness. Mm-hmm. We did not choose that. That is not something that we elected, and it brings us great pain. Mm-hmm. A death of a loved one is suffering. We did not elect that. We did not choose that. That is pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's a big mistake to say, oh, I suffer for my art. Well, actually, then you're bringing that on, man. Yeah. Or woman or non-binary person. You're you're choosing that then. Right. Right. And if you're choosing to suffer, that's on you. Right. For that. Right. There's plenty that we as human beings, as part of our existence, will suffer with. 
That's a part of living. Mm -hmm. So in what we choose to do, if we veer that towards suffering, I I think that's, I think that's a big mistake. I think it's dangerous too. It's so dangerous. It's dangerous to our mental and our physical well-being. You can make yourself, you can make yourself sick. Mm -hmm. In, in, in body and spirit. And, you know, if you, if you're not experiencing joy, when you create, you need to reassess what it is you're creating, how it is you're creating and why you're creating. Mm -hmm. I am, I am firmly in the camp that we should not suffer for art. It's just, it's not a prerequisite. It's not, it, they, they do not go hand in hand. We do not suffer for our art, for our art. I experience joy when I compose. I am bringing something into being that did not exist before I sat down at my keyboard and computer and went click, click, click on my mouse with Finale 25. That's <laughs> incredible. I bring, that is joyous. That is absolutely joyous. And anytime I practice, if I feel myself suffering, I have to recognize that I am bringing a mindset to that practice session that is not healthy. That is not the saxophone. It is not the reed. It is not the piece of music. That's not what's bringing me suffering. I am creating the suffering because my mindset is not right. I think another thing... uh with suffering and being creative is that, um, I mean, you said this, but like, it's not possible. It isn't like you can't like in the most literal sense, you can't be suffering and have the wherewithal to be creative, to find creative solutions, to do something effectively and then produce something, uh, like powerful. Right. You know? And, and, And so it blows my mind then that we equate, suffering with a creative state when to me suffering means an existential survival threat right right right? talk to somebody who is very sick Mm -hmm. and without shelter and without food and ask them hey what did you create today (laughs) they will rightfully want to kick your ass so with with suffering i'm sorry for interrupting i'm just no um, no no I feel like there's a level, there's like somewhere in there in the definition is the word inability or or something like that, you know, like the inability brought on by some, like you said, external, something be like, like you said, right. the death of a loved one, a sickness, um, like, right. I, but I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think oftentimes people wish suffering on their creative selves to block their creativity. And why would a person want to block their creativity? Because they fear empathy. Oh my God. I think you're, yeah, that's, that's. They fear the elimination of their persona. Mm -hmm. They're avoiding discomfort. They're avoiding discomfort. (laughs) They're avoiding discomfort where if you think about creativity as inherently something that is uncomfortable, 
that eliminates your persona and is fundamentally geared toward connecting with other human beings, it's pretty amazing how easy creativity becomes Mm -hmm. when you accept those three conditions, right? When you accept discomfort, when you accept the fact that you are fundamentally doing it for someone else, you know, and, and when you accept that it will erode your persona rather than reinforcing it, yeah, then, then creativity becomes easy. I, I derive so much joy from composing a piece of music when I'm not thinking about, oh, how great is Alan Tyson as a composer <laughs> that he is writing this? No, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this person who is a phenomenal performer is asking me to write a piece of music for them. Wow. Yeah, I am yeah. going to focus 100% of my creative intuition and energies on them. How can I write something that they think is cool? How can I write something that makes them sound fantastic in front of an audience? How can I write something that when they play it, a crowd just goes, whoa, did you hear blank? Yes. It's incredible how easy creativity becomes, becomes when you take yourself out of the damn equation. <laughs> I love that, man. That's the, this, this is totally connecting to everything you've said, like you said, with empathy and purpose, right? right? Yes. What, yes. So I, I'm, I'm wondering, what is your uh, relationship to the blank page? Like when, like before you've started writing anything and you have that manuscript paper right in front of you, there's nothing on it. Oh God, I love it. Isn't it incredible? It's frightening. It's, yes. Which <laughs> is precisely why you want to dive in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It's the it's like walking into a natatorium with an Olympic-sized swimming pool yeah. with completely still water. Fucking jump in. Yeah. Do it. Splash around, make noise, be crazy, dance, pull off your bathing suit. No one cares. Be naked in that. Be joyful. Splash around, dog paddle. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? That's that's the joy of it. That's yeah. that blank page. Be uncomfortable with that. Is it going to feel weird? I hope it does. Recognize the fact that it feels weird. Be joyous about the weirdness. Life is weird. Life is unpredictable. Life is challenging so enjoy that enjoy that aspect of it you should not seek to eliminate that you should seek to amplify that discomfort be weird see what happens you might discover a kind of swimming stroke that no other human being has ever done before and you might be the best at it oh yeah you'll never know splash around and so you know it is it is daunting but my god isn't that the joy isn't that the joy? It's, it's, it's incredible to me. And again, when I begin composing, I start with an interview with a person commissioning me. Yes, yes. I do something exactly like this. Sometimes it lasts multiple hours yeah. where we have a conversation and we just talk about stuff. Like, what do you like doing? 
with your instrument or voice? What do you not like doing? What do you wish you had a chance to do more? What do you never want to do again? What's some of your favorite repertoire that's new? What's some of your favorite repertoire that's old? What's a piece that you had to perform that, my God, you never want to perform again? I want to know all of that stuff. Right. Oh, right? yeah, totally. And like, what's, I, I mean, I'll even ask a, a performer, what's your favorite note to play or sing? Yeah, yeah. And I'll start with that note. Why not? Like, you got to start somewhere. You might as well start with that person's favorite note. Exactly. Cool. Let's do it. Right? (laughs) And so, again, the more you you bring that collaborative, empathetic spirit into your own creative process, the easier it becomes. Mm -hmm. It becomes harder when you think you're creating to re- affirm your persona mm-hmm. that's when creativity becomes hard and of course then that person goes oh wow i just oh i was just sweating blood today to come up with notes yeah because you're coming up with notes that you think will make you sound good what a bore oh yeah i think i think that aligns with people saying um like this isn't my voice or like Ugh. you know um like like I well I I use these types of chords and this type of texture you know I I don't do that right I mean and, th- and that's to- that's totally valid also in a sense that it's like um, I, I sure I guess but you can also end up shutting yourself out to things that you never knew that you actually like right? yeah totally you know totally it's like imagine imagine kissing a romantic partner for the first time and they're like hey would you like to you know use tongue when we kiss and, and being like oh well i've never done that before <laughs> i don't know maybe not let's try something different i don't know about you anymore just do it shut up try right, it right if you hate it then you could always backtrack but come on jump in the deep end yeah and, and i I think, uh, especially in the early stages when you're writing a piece, like, like when I said the blank page for me, it's, it's frightening, but at the same time, it's exciting because whatever I write, I know it's going to be something it's not right. going it, to, it, whether it's good or not, like that kind of doesn't matter in the beginning. It doesn't, you it know? absolutely doesn't. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter. You know, what's a dumb idea starting a, a whole ballet with a bassoon screeching out a high C. <laughs> oh that's a that's that's a that's a dumb idea i'm glad he followed it right yeah i yeah i just follow dumb ideas they're the best usually (laughs) (laughs) jump into those dumb ideas make it happen i think that's going to be the tagline of this episode follow dumb ideas follow dumb ideas you should you absolutely should because following dumb ideas usually means following the collective unconscious. Sure. It usually means following that thing that's going to empathetically connect you with a huge number of people. Mm-hmm. Because what is dumb to you is really your own persona being like, oh, no, 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 this is breaking down what I think I am. Yeah. This is, this is going contrary to the mask I wear. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. Be like, good, good. <laughs> follow that dumb idea because then maybe that mask will break like dry clay and fall off of your face. Mm. I think that's accurate. I think that, uh, especially as creative people, I mean, 
that's that's literally what it is like we were saying earlier if you're not if you're not pushing yourself and being in that discomfort in some way then you're not progressing and right. growing you know right right um yeah i know for me and this is me like i'm a pretty i have a level of self-consciousness that like just pushes me down you know so like okay i'll have an instance where i'm um I'm trying something out, whatever. And that, that, like we said earlier, that vulnerability of being like, Oh, here's something that I'm uncertain about, but I tried. Right. And then getting that no from everyone. And then you're like, Oh shit. Right. You know, I think, I think there's, there's something like where, where you and I differ there where you, you are like, I'm fucking doing this. (laughs) Sometimes I'm like that. Sometimes I am. And sometimes I'm like, I can't. Oh, well, I, I want to be real, man. I don't I don't want to play myself up as like some sort of like compositional messiah. I'm sure as hell not. I'm still trying to figure shit out. I still throw up those blocks. I still be like, I, I still tell myself, oh, no, no, I can't do that. Right, right. right. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a battle I constantly face, you know? And I have to like, I have to kick my own ass. That has to happen, yeah. right? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's an uncomfortable battle. (laughs) That's what you got to do though. You know, I, I practiced for almost 90 minutes tonight and I sounded like shit. That's okay. You know, tomorrow's another day. I'm going to do it again. You know, I'm not going to be like, well, I sounded bad tonight. I guess I'm not going to practice tomorrow. It's like, no, I'm probably going to practice twice as long tomorrow because that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lean into the fact that I was not making good sounds tonight. All right, fine. Good. Good. I'm glad I didn't make it. (laughs) I challenge myself to practice 30 minutes more tomorrow. Let's do it. I I was just going to say, I love that you're like picking a fight with yourself. Absolutely. (laughs) You have to. You have to pick a fight with yourself in the best possible way because if you don't pick a fight with the negative part of you, your negative part of you is sure going to pick a fight with you. Oh, yeah. And that negative part, like you will bully yourself into never acting. And so you've got to pick a fight with that part of you that talks shit about you. You've got to pick a fight with that motherfucker that's deep inside you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Find that little asshole and beat the shit out of him. I, I gave mine a name whenever I really? had this. Like, oh, yeah, I did. That's awesome. What's yeah. What's the name of your inner asshole? My inner asshole is called Feisty Little Bitch. Oh, I love it. <laughs> FLB. Yeah, that's right. Gotta find FLB and just like challenge him on the playground. <laughs> you and me. You're you want my lunch stuff. money, motherfucker? Yeah, <laughs> you're gonna have to take it. You <laughs> might take it, but but I'm gonna get a lick in there somehow. Exactly. I'll put you in your ear. <laughs> see what happens, and then see how creative you are with one ear. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> nice man. I like that. That was great. It's like you might you might use my lunch money to buy something, but your ears gonna hurt when you do it. You're gonna remember. <laughs> you're gonna remember. You have to. You have to get. You have to push back. You have to push back because that's that's that persona. That's that mask that wants to say, oh, you know, it'd be really great. Maybe you should just not play saxophone anymore. Mm. 
you know, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. Wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. You could just sit at home and watch eight hours of Netflix and eat mashed potatoes. Wouldn't that be real nice? And then your brain starts going, yeah, yeah, that would be real nice. Maybe I won't compose anything anymore, right? It's it's so weird that like, you know, I think about creativity as sharing naked baby photos. Uh-huh. Because like, if you ask somebody like, hey, would you would you share a naked baby photo with a stranger? They'd be like, no. You'd be like, why not? You know that there are naked baby photos of them. Yeah. And that was you from so long ago. Who cares? Right. Like right. that's a part of the shared human experience, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's so weird that we would be embarrassed by that because it's something that we all experience. We were all babies at, at one time. We were all like little like piles of goo that that came out of our our mom like a couple months before that picture was taken. We were all there. That's that's part of who we are. And yet we would be really weirded out by people seeing our our naked baby photos. And being a creative artist is recognizing the fact that everybody has that and and you get to be like, "Hey, look at this like Weird little thing my hair was doing. Isn't that funny? <laughs> right? Well, I got to say, man, I think we just came up with a title for your memoir, if you ever write one. Naked Baby Photos? Yeah. I think Ben Folds has a uh, has an album uh, that was like all like early shit that Ben Folds 5 did. I think it's called like Naked Baby Pics. Or not Pics. I think, I think it's called Naked Baby Photos. But yeah, I'm going to take it. I'm a Ben Folds fan. I'll... I'll steal that as my memoir. Naked baby photos. Yeah, exactly. The story of this asshole who thought he could run seven careers simultaneously by <laughs> Alan Tyson. But he but he did it with such purpose. He did it with such purpose because I just want to connect with folks. You oh know? my god. That's that's what I learned a long time ago. You know, it's I found the pieces of mine that were always hardest to write were the ones that I were, or that I was trying to write to show everybody just how smart I was. Mm. What a miserable fucking goal that is. Totally. Right. And so just being like, Hey, what if I wrote a piece that made this person sound good? Mm -hmm. God, those pieces just pop right out. Imagine that. Right. It's an interesting thought. (laughs) Stop, stop trying to be clever. Be sincere. The world has enough clever. That's just people taking their masks and rubbing them together, creating friction. Being like, wow, isn't this neat? No, it's really not. It's boring. You get old, (laughs) you know? Write what you want to write. Sort of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and write what you want to write that you think will help other people grow and connect as musicians and as audience members, you Mm -hmm. know? So, you know, for all wearing masks and trying to kiss through the mask, it's just going to click, you know, there, there's not going to be any contact there. You have to get rid of those masks and then you can start to connect. And there's no authenticity if you're wearing a mask. Yeah, exactly right. That's not your true self. That's not your true self. Yeah. yeah. Find your true self by removing that mask. That's it. That's, that's it. beautiful. That's, that's the beautiful wisdom right there. It's not mine. It's just out there. Right. Dude, I, I think this is a good spot right here to, to I think it, it I think it is. I think I, it is two and a half hours, man. This whew. is going to be like, 
you're gonna have to warn your listeners you're gonna have to be like buckle up yeah cups <laughs> you're you in are, for a ride we, you we, are in we traversed you are in for the full 150 minute experience pull up a chair here we go grab some scotch Grab some scotch. I don't know. Like I just speaking of Christopher Walken, I said the I said grab grab your chair in a weird like Walken cadence. I was, oh, I missed it. Damn, was, that was really weird. I didn't I didn't do an impression. It was just like something about the cadence. It just sort of words. worked out that way. Yeah, just kind of just kind of got there. So, yeah, I think now that I'm two very full glasses of scotch in and a beautiful conversation and i'm gonna find a little bit of food yeah do a little nighttime meditation do a little reading there's a a book of uh wallace stevens poems that i'm i'm gonna get back to and uh see see how that speaks to me and uh yeah thank you adam for this absolutely beautiful conversation i really value it brother Dude, I, I appreciate you wanting to be a part of this. And oh my uh, gosh, it was it, this was such a fantastic conversation. I mean, I, I this was for first of all, like definitely the longest, and and that's not a complaint either. That's no, like, yeah, a no, celebration. I agree, man. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool, man. And I love every little direction we went in, and and all the things we talked about. And you 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 said some some powerful powerful things. Well, I appreciate you, man. I thank you for saying that. And I hope, uh, I hope your listeners, uh, vibe with a lot of what we were talking about. And, uh, I hope they feel free to message us if, if, uh, they have some thoughts about what we said. I think that's going to be, I think that's going uh, to be really powerful. I hope this connects, man. Thank you so much, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, real quick, if you want to plug any of your social media or anything, how people can reach out, reach out. Oh, yeah, man. I'm pretty easy to find on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On Instagram, I am Dr. Alan Tyson, D-R, Alan Tyson. On Twitter, I'm just Alan Tyson. Um, I'm pretty easy to find that way. Actually, one of the easiest ways that you can find me is just to go to my website, um, if you go to my website, you can uh, find all of my social media stuff that way. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty easy. So it's just alantyson.com, A-L-A-N-T-H-E-I-S-E-N.com. Um, and you can catch up with uh, everything I do as a composer, as a saxophonist, as an author, as an educator, ton of ton of resources on my website there are scores you can buy there are pieces that you can listen to for free there's a ton of stuff there and um you know through my website you can also find uh the website for my fantastic duo with megan enan who has also been a guest on this podcast of course um megan enan and alan tyson present so you can just go to miatp.com and see all the rad shit that we've been up to for four years now Woo. and uh the stuff that we have planned um best 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 duo partner in the world god it's just magic i just love it i love i love her to death i love the the magic that we make together it's so much fun we have so much planned y'all don't even know ah uh. We have so much. It is like what we have done the past three and a half years is just the tip of the iceberg. It is, yeah, it runs deep, man. We have stuff planned years, like years from now, literally years from now, we have stuff planned. It's going to be really great. <laughs> really great. 
I'm excited about that. And well, thank I know, you, Adam. I know all these people are going to be excited too. Thank you, man. You, you two are fantastic, both Thanks. as people and as a unit. Oh, man. Thank you, Adam. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah, we, we have a great time. We have a big rehearsal coming up next weekend because we have a recording project in December. We're going to lay down some stuff in the studio. It's going to be really great. We have an album coming out in early early 2021 we have music videos coming out we're just gonna like you get we're gonna be we're gonna be popping you're gonna be seeing and hearing a lot from us and we're gonna be bringing that energy hell yeah uh, to as many folks as we can because that's what we like to do you uh, know, our, our motto our motto of new music everywhere you know that's that's something that we are big believers in and you know our recording projects are going to be a huge part of that so um yeah. Can you see via the Zoom video that I have this giant Band-Aid on my chin right here? I did not notice it. You did not notice that. All right, far up. That's cool. All right. <laughs> yeah, I got in a fight this morning with my razor. Oh, God. I, ha I actually have not cut myself this bad uh, since like 17 years ago. It's really wild. And I don't even know how it happened. I was just like shaving, shaving. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And then like my arm just went blip, blip, or something. I don't know what happened. And then just blood just pouring out of my chin. It was like 30 minutes of my morning just holding like a whole box of Kleenex in my chin. It was crazy. And then, uh, yeah, it was wild. That's how I started my day. And so, but I, I had a good laugh about it. Yeah, yeah. Because... <laughs> You know, I recognize that as one of the 40% that existence would throw at me. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Right. There you it know? is. There it is. It's, exactly. So you, you have, you get to laugh and shake it off when the universe throws something stupid at you. And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's part of the fun. Well, the good news is when you're wearing a pandemic mask to teach it, nobody can, none of my students today were like, Dr. Tyson, why is there a giant Band-Aid on your chin? <laughs> I was like, well, let me tell you. Yeah, like let you me tell you. Uh, you know, I just had a big mask on my face. So, you Adam, you are up. a, yeah, exactly. You are a blessing to the universe. Thank you very much, brother. I hope you have a beautiful night. I can't wait to hear this episode. I hope people resonate with it. And I, I can't wait to hear where this podcast goes forever this is really awesome man congratulations to you ah thank you so much i i appreciate you coming on here i, I love you to death and this is just fantastic so this is awesome I, man I, I can't wait for us to get to do this again and yeah uh, me too you know more, Look, I'm more a, scotch more more movies more uh absolutely know. absolutely i'm a i'm a chatty guy you can get me going that's that's absolutely no problem so uh yeah, man, this is this is really fantastic, and uh, I'm eagerly awaiting to see which uh, which of my quotes from this interview you pull uh, <laughs> to uh, to hype this episode. I'm gonna be like, oh shit, I said what? Uh, but you just do it. You lean into it, man. Lean oh, into I it. I will. I will. Yeah, I, I have no idea yet, thing. but there's there's so many options. There's gonna be some juicy <laughs> options, I'm sure. Thank you.